everybody. Welcome to the Directors Club podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Rapole, once again. And uh, today I am joined by someone who, at this point, is probably uh, more recently associated with this podcast than I am, uh, Bill Ackerman. Bill, how are you doing? <laughs> uh, doing pretty good. As I, as I told you before we started, I'm sitting on the floor of my parents' basement uh, because this is the only place where we can get a clear internet signal. But uh, happy to talk to you about... Uh, <laughs> The films of Simon Lang today. <laughs> Simon Lang is uh, a filmmaker about liminal spaces. So, <laughs> sort of making uh, unintended use of the cold, unfinished basement floor is really within the spirit of the whole thing. Unfortunately, it's not like a flooded basement, so it's only going to really remind me of his film so much. But you know, we'll right. <laughs> we'll do what we can. Right. Um, yeah. So uh, last time we got together on this podcast, we talked about a uh, ethnically Chinese displaced uh, art house darling. Uh, who made films about uh, people who are lonely and struggling to connect uh, that are sort of infused with his uh, quirky sense of humor. Um, but this time we're talking about uh, Chiming Liang and not Wong Kar Wai. So it's going to be a very different episode. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I guess what I want to ask you with uh, just getting started here, c- can you tell me what the first film of his you saw was? I don't think I yeah. know this. My So I had never heard of... Chiming Liang before all of his year, his most well-known years uh, of being sort of a festival darling, if not someone who crosses over and makes much money at the box office anywhere, um, were sort of dark years for me where I wasn't really paying attention to film culture in that way. Also, this is an episode on a Taiwanese filmmaker with a lot of uh, Taiwanese cast and crew and all of that. And as I think I also brought this up in the Wong Kar Wai episode, everyone deserves to have their names pronounced correctly. Probably not going to do it. <laughs> I I, uh, I recorded a, uh, a lecture of uh, Chai Ming Liang that I attended, and one of the two speakers beforehand said Sai Ming Liang, and one said Chai Ming Liang. So... I, I honestly, like right at the start, very uncertain if I'm supposed to be saying Chiming Liang or Siming Liang. But uh, at any rate, my introduction to Chiming Liang was the Gene Siskel Film Center had a program that was retrospective of all of his films. I want to say this is around like 2015 or 2016 because uh, I was working at the video store at the time. And it was one of those things where I, I saw it on the schedule and I never heard the name before. And I said, all right, well, that probably isn't too important. I've never heard this person before. Uh, but one of the movies was called Rebels of the Neon God. And I went, that is the coolest film title I've ever heard. Clearly, this is some sort of like crazy, uh, you know, rebel without a cause meets cyberpunk kind of movie. And <laughs> I was like, I got to see that eventually. I didn't see any of those movies at the Gene Siskel, but I did work at a video store so um, there was a year where I was trying to watch, like, make a concentrated effort to wa- watch a lot more Asian films, and you know I saw Rebels of the Neon God uh, on DVD from there, and it was like right in about of like I saw Rebels of the Neon God and Millennium Mambo and uh, Unknown Pleasures, and there was all these movies that felt like very of a piece. So we, you know, we'll, we'll talk about Rebels of the Neon God. It's a very atypical Chiming Liang movie in many ways, and. So to me, I, I took it not as like, oh, what an interesting film from this, you know, idiosyncratic auteur. I took it as like just of a broader piece about, you know, Chinese movies about sort of alienated youth uh, who are, you know, lonely and melancholy. 
So that was my first uh, experience with Chiming Liang. What was your uh, first experience with Chiming Liang? I guess I guess it was December sixth, two thousand five. Was the first time I saw. I I, I have this because I recorded it because I had rented it from Netflix DVD. But it was uh, what time is it there? Mm. I was a big. Um, film comment reader and film comment i started reading regularly in 2001 and i think at the time they were focusing on a lot of international directors that weren't quite like the um like the big money maker like siskel and ebert appearances like like they they weren't they, they were kind of just being embraced like on the Lincoln Center, like film festivals and such. Like I'm thinking of people like Hosho Shen and Bellatar, and I never know how to say his name. But Pichapang Rasathakal, mm-hmm. Olivier Asias, the Dardens, Pedro Costa, and Simon Liang was part of that. But um, but all these all these directors, a lot of them that fall under that kind of umbrella term of slow cinema, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But a lot of them, I kind of racket together in my head because I was reading about them for a while before I actually saw any of the films and I didn't know anyone that knew any of this stuff I think at the time like the big people in art house were like people like Michael Haneke and um, Catherine Brayat and uh, Von Trier and so, like these were these were more austere and less genre uh, I mean Rebels of Neon Gun, uh, God aside like I think a lot of these are not really genre films they're just straight up contemplative art house films and I think when I got to what time is it there I didn't quite I didn't quite get it. I didn't dislike it, but I didn't quite get it either. Like, I think I'd never, like, I'd seen Tarkovsky and Brisson and Antonio. Like, I was familiar with, like, slower pacing, but, and since we mentioned Wong Kar Wai, I was familiar with, like, that kind of more French New Wave kind of uh, pop sensibility kind of Asian cult film, but I wasn't really familiar with something like this. Um, that that the scenes played out that long, and that and the comedy. I I mean, I recognized that it, he was playing like with deadpan comedy. Like I got that it was like half comedy, half tragic. But yeah, it was just a tone I didn't quite know what to do with it at the time. And then I didn't really see anything from him for a few years after that. Rebels of the Neon God and the Wayward Cloud were what I came to later. And then I don't know if I really connected with him again until Days in 2020. So it was kind of a great catch up kind of preparing for this to see things like stray dogs that I had meant to see if had not and things like the hole and the river that I had read about forever but just you know had never gotten around to them so I don't know it's 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 not a career that I have totally got a beat on and I I know that you did a lot of research for this and know way more about him than I do so I'm gonna probably learn a few things as we talk about this yeah yeah absolutely I yeah and uh, we we brought up some of this already and just uh, sort of talking about our experiences with these movies. But generally, the thing you would know Chiming Liang for, uh, if there's one film that sort of stands above his others, like it, it's on the sight and sound list. It's uh, one of uh, a, only a handful of uh, Chinese language films on the sight and sound, you know, top 250 films of all time list. Uh, Goodbye Dragon Inn. Um, not a film that, necessarily yeah slots into a genre comfortably it's 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 a movie that i i love so much but it's very hard to recommend but it it might also be a good sort of way to explain what his approach is which is he makes these slower paced films he uh focuses on sort of place uh environments 
uh, he makes he makes films about loneliness, about uh, characters, uh, sort of are who are full of longing, who are constantly reaching out to each other uh, in ways, that, but never quite connecting. Um, it's his films are sort of about dissatisfaction. But uh, another part of Goodbye Dragon Inn is that it's also like uh, it does have that half tragedy, half comedy thing that Bill brought up where it's it's got this uh, sort of Jacques Tati sensibility where there's a lot of like silent comedy going on. And that's one that I think is where I really kind of got it with him as far as like what he was up to, because I think that was I mean, because I think Rebel Rebels of the Neon God, I think, is almost kind of like a, a different kind of film. But the, uh, of, the, of what you associate with him as far as that slower pacing, I think I think Goodbye Dragon is where I kind of came to understand what he was doing. Um, and I guess that is going to be, you know, since you mentioned Sight and Sound, Paul, and, and uh, Nick Pinkerton wrote a great monograph on it. I think that that one is getting more attention, has a nice Blu-ray from Second Run. It's, that might be pushed as like his Jean Dielman or whatever, like as yes. far as like the signature film. But I, I mean, when I was getting into him, I think What Time Is It There and Rebels of the Neon God were like the two most popular ones. And those, and those definitely are much more traditional narrative films. Uh, and those were the ones that I really gravitated to. Like, when I liked What Time It Is It There, I liked how much it reminded me of Rebels of the Neon God. And then when I, first time I saw <laughs> Goodbye Dragon Inn, I was like, what the hell is this? Nothing happens. There's a shot that lasts for seven minutes of just, like, an empty theater. This is this is just, like, too far. He, he's just pushing it to the breaking point. Uh, I came around, and we will talk in depth on Goodbye Dragon Inn. But yeah. uh, generally speaking... Things you need to sort of know about Chiming Liang. And I, I do feel the need to sort of introduce him broadly to people in a way that many of the other directors I've covered I don't because his work is so hard to see and because he is more obscure than a lot. You know, Tony Scott is a, is a director I've done on here. You don't need me to explain Tony Scott to you. But uh, <laughs> I totally understand people who have not seen many of these films because, uh, you know, on home video they're difficult to see. And be just because they are in their pace and in their sort of alienating emotional states, they are uh, a little bit more challenging than the average sort of crossover art house fare. But, uh, you know, s slow pace, sense of humor, sense of uh, alienation, sense of environment. Uh, he's a gay filmmaker. And that queer sexuality uh, is threaded through pretty much every single one of his movies. In, in in you know always in sort of fascinating indirect ways there're not many movies that are about like a gay community or like a gay relationship they're mostly uh about sort of uh longing and uh the feeling of isolation one feels uh but um that that's basically uh that's basically the the filmmaking style uh in general we can get more into specifics we're going to be talking about four films on this podcast sort of uh to exemplify the arc of his career because he is someone who started making movies his first uh, theatrical feature films in 1992 uh, his most recent one was came out in 2020 and the difference in the sensibility and the pace and the feeling and what he's attempting and sort of the worlds outside of theatrical film exhibition that he has dipped into since then um, all inform a pretty dramatic career arc, despite the fact that his his work kind of all feels like one big movie. There's there's so many repeating elements. So what we're going to do is we're going to cover four movies, but we're also going to be covering these elements that keep popping up. And in the in those elements, we're sort of discuss uh, the other works in his filmography. The four movies we're going to discuss are his first movie from 1992, Rebels of the Neon God. Uh, we're going to be talking about What Time Is It There from 2001. We're going to be talking about Goodbye Dragon Inn from 2003. And we're going to be talking about Stray Dogs from 2013. Um, 
Before we get into any of that, I do have a little bit of biography. Um, Chiming Liang was born in Malaysia in 1957. He was a second-generation Chinese immigrant, and his parents were farmers who also ran a noodle stall. Uh, he was largely raised by his doting grandparents, who instilled a love of cinema in him by constantly taking him to a movies as a young man. They even uh, did his homework and schoolwork for him so that he wouldn't have to do it, and he instead could feel free to wander around Malaysia and daydream. Uh, in 1977, he moved to Taiwan to enroll in the Taipei Chinese Cultural University to study dramatic art. That's right. He, he began his career in the arts not as a filmmaker at all, but as a playwright, which I think is sort of an interesting, important part of the puzzle and how he arrives at his sensibility. In the early 80s, he wrote, directed, and occasionally starred in three avant-garde plays. Uh, those plays are Instant Bean Sauce Noodle, A Sealed Door in the Dark, and A Wardrobe in the Room. And those plays tackled themes of sadomasochistic power, gay love, queer identity, loneliness, confinement, all things that will continue to pop up in his filmography all the way to 2020. Um, like most Taiwanese directors of his generation, he got his start on television, writing for a primetime soap opera called Endless Love. This led to his feature directorial debut, the 1989 TV movie All the Corners of the World, which depicted the life of a family in the margins of Taipei society who make a living scalping tickets. Two years later, he made Boys, his first film with debuting actor Lee Kang Sheng, who would go on to become his muse and even a domestic partner of sorts. It's a very fascinating relationship the two have, and we'll get into all of that. Um, but Lee Kang Sheng will go on to be in every single one of Chiming Liang's movies from now on. And it's kind of impossible to talk about the work of Chiming Liang without talking about the performances of Lee Kang Sheng. Boys was a film about divisions between the middle and lower class in Taipei and the ways that a juvenile delinquent and a petty thief lashes out uh, in frustration over his life, which perhaps makes uh, this the perfect transition point to talk about the first film we're going to be discussing, uh, his theatrical uh, debut, Rebels of the Neon God. Rebels of the Neon God uh, stars Lee Kang Sheng as uh, Xiao Kang. Xiao Kang is a character that pops up in uh, most of the films of the first 10 years of, of uh, Simon Liang's career. thing about that is... Is he the same character in all of these movies, or is he just playing a similar person with the same name? We can get into that as well. Uh, Xiao Kang is a uh, schoolboy who's in a cram school, uh, who drops out of a cram school uh, to sort of, and, and takes the tuition that he gets uh, refunded to him, and sort of just wanders around Taipei blowing the money in arcades and stuff like that. Uh, he becomes fixated on a uh, juvenile delinquent and petty criminal, uh, Ah Che. Uh, played by Chen Chaojung, who would also go on to appear in several uh, Chiming Liang movies. Uh, ah Se and his best friend Ah Ping have a love triangle with Ah Kui, um, who is played by uh, Wang Yuan. Um, and so there, you have these sort of three parallel, uh, occasionally intersecting narratives where uh, Xiao Kang, uh, the uh, cram school dropout, is following these juvenile delinquents and... You get you you wonder is he longing after them sexually is he longing after the freedom that he perceives them to have is he wishing that he could you know be as cool as them um, you also get the narrative of these juvenile delinquents and um, sort of how bleak their life is and and just you know the crimes they pull off involve breaking into phone boxes and and like robbing an arcade and like really low level stuff that gets them into you know hot water and. You get the feeling through the apartment that Atsi lives in that's constantly flooding that, uh, you know, life is kind of bleak for those in the lower class. And <laughs> they might even possibly serve as a warning of what Xiao Kang's life could be like if he doesn't 
you know, go to college, if he doesn't, uh, you know, elevate into the middle class, uh, what life in the lower class Taipei, uh, how desperate it is. And then you also follow the lives of uh, Xiao Kang's parents, played by Lu Yingqing. Uh, who's his mother, and Miao Tian, who is his father. Uh, Lu Yiqing and Miao Tian will also appear in uh, the next several movies by Chiming Liang as uh, Li, uh, Li Kangsheng's parents. This, they, uh, the apartment they live in was uh, Li Kangsheng's actual apartment, um, and they would use that same apartment to shoot several future movies. So there is this continuity there where you're following Shao Kang and his mother and father in the same apartment as they get older. Um, but this first film, I, I want to ask uh, uh, Bill, what, what do you think about Rebels of the Neon God? I love it. I think it's one of the most traditionally entertaining movies he made. And it, it's funny because I had never seen... We don't have to go into them in depth, but uh, all, I'd never seen all the co- corners of the world or boys prior to preparing for this, and I enjoyed those both as well. And those are both kind of uh, kind of coming of age youth melodrama stories that mm. I think have a lot in common with Rebels of the Neon God. So I was surprised how much they reminded me of like maybe just more conventional takes on this kind of milieu but this is this feels like the transition into the kind of things he does with uh Lee Kang uh Shang uh later on uh as far as like making him more the focus like here he's almost kind of like stalking a more traditional kind of film because it's like you have the the hood love triangle thing, which you know. I mean, you we you know we talk about things like Ashes of Time or Mean Streets or Scarface. I mean, there's a lot of you know love triangle crime kind of, and not that these are like heavy criminals. I mean, they they try to pull off some kind of meager heist. They're 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 but they they remind me of those kind of like Mean Streets characters, and they're aspiring maybe to some kind of crime life. Uh, but they're just they're also just kids and just goofing off too. Um, so it like it has a lot of the the kind of romantic depiction of like you know kids like flirting and riding around on motorbikes at night and you know like the it, it, he uses a um this kind of recurring synthesizer hook kind of song t- that is also quite different from like what you get into later as far as like having like you know the kind of coolness of like a you know whatever like a Michael Mann or a you know a, a Refn like some kind of like cool synthesizer at night kind of atmosphere that is really not what you get in the later films. Um, so like that kind of I believe this is the only film that has a uh, non diegetic score. You know you could be right. I can't I can't remember if there's anything in in Viva L'Amour, but yeah it definitely stands apart in that respect as well. But then you have this the the story you know with with Lee Kang Shen kind of stalking them and stalking the the leader is it Asi Asi stalking him in a way that I always took it to be I always took it to be attraction but I mean what you're saying is other motives for it I mean those are there also it, it recreates a moment in all the corners of the world as far as the kind of violent way that he expresses that frustration by like attacking his vehicle in a way that is kind of similar to a, a moment in all the corners of the world as far as not like that the person is like dangerously you know like stalking to hurt somebody but their their sexual frustration comes out in in other ways that are violent um that it's interesting because it, you don't know like it creates a tension like you don't know what this character is really up to is it just that they are and the fact that like that it's 
there's a homophobia to the attack also right. suggests a kind of um like a self-hated closeted thing that is, he uh, spray paints the word aids onto his uh, motorbike yeah and so it's I don't know. It's. I, I mean, I don't want to give away every beat of the story. Not that it's a, a, a too heavy uh, on plot, because it is basically a lot of hanging out with these characters and observing them. But it's not. Um, it's not quite as static as the kind of thing he gets into later. Like it is. It does feel like like a cool youth movie that just has a lot of the traces of what he's going to develop in the mature style. I mean, because it's got like the imagery that you would find with like the flooded. You know, the, the flooded floors and things that, like, I associate with, like, you know, uh, what, what's to come. But I think as a gateway in, I think this is probably the best place to start for a, for a, a neophyte. And it has a Blu-ray in the U.S., so it has, like, it's easier to see a good-looking version of this than maybe some of the other films that come later. Um, so yeah, no, I think, I mean, I, I'd seen this one before, but, like, I've rewatched it twice, you know, prior to us talking today, and I... It only just grows on me more and more each time I watch it. Yeah, I, I in general, the, the work of Chiming Liang, the first time I see a movie, I can only sort of walk on the surface of it. Mm-hmm. And as, especially in preparing for this episode, in watching all of these movies, um, it's especially easy to sort of get all of these inroads into these subtexts and hidden meanings and more subtle uh, things that are going on. But like the first time I saw this movie, I loved it because it was just that like really attractive, like uh, youth movie where like Taipei is so beautiful in this movie. Uh, it's a very exciting location. They, it feels bursting with life and people there's like crowded shots in malls and that's, uh, and, and food courts and things like that. And arcades that's, too. Yeah. Arcades, the mall and, and food courts and, and that sort of thing is, is a constant thing throughout all of these movies that you're, you're just constantly seeing these open air markets. Um, you have the, the motorcycles, you have the, the, the arcades again, like I'm just, I love video games and stuff. So like just seeing these like classic arcades and seeing, you know, uh, the little d- details of, well, of course, Capcom isn't going to make a separate, uh, they call them bezel, is the sort of plastic uh, cards that go on the sides of arcades that say the name and have the artwork and everything on the machines. Mm-hmm. And of course, they're not going to go through the trouble of doing a Taiwanese-specific bezel. So you just have the Chinese-language uh, Street Fighter machine with a post-it note that has the Taiwanese title like just on the front of it. And like there are little <laughs> details like that of like, oh, that was how what an arcade was like in 1992 in Taipei. You know, uh, the thing across all these movies and across pretty much all uh, t- of Taiwanese New Wave is that these are very low budget movies. And so they're mostly shot on location. There's very few uh, sets built ever. And so many of these movies, part of the joy is the locations of them. Are those environments we talked about? I, d- I do want to talk about um, t- uh, Taiwanese New Wave. Uh, in on a, in a slightly broader way, because Chiming Liang doesn't quite fit into the Taiwanese New Wave, but it's possible people don't know too much about uh, the Taiwanese New Wave. You brought up that it feels like someone stalking a more conventional movie. What it feels like specifically is someone stalking a conventional Taiwanese New Wave movie. Uh, a Brighter Summer Day came out the year before, 
and it all of these love triangles and the petty crime and the and the violence and the youth feeling totally repressed by like there's a shot in Rebels of the Neon God where he does go to cram school and he gets there late so he has to go in the back of the class and you see like the camera pan over and it is like 90 students crammed into this classroom and you know for a fact like anyone sitting in the back has no chance of hearing what the teacher's saying and it really is just like in a single shot it sums up like it's a very pointed uh, uh, critique of the educational system uh, in Taipei. And there's so many Hao Shei Shen movies and Edward Yang movies where you have that anxiety over school and about getting into a good school and about upward uh, mobilization. Um, and all of that stuff is the parts that make Rebels in the Neon God such a strange it, it, it makes it a strange object in the Chiming Liang uh, oeuvre because so few of his films feel traditional in that way. Um, and you can almost see this, uh, you can almost read this as uh, Xiao Kang is Siming Liang, and the more conventional narrative is the thing that he can't quite bring himself to tell, and he is sort <laughs> of like on the outside, like uh, feeling jealous of these other filmmakers who can connect to audiences, no and he knows that his own instincts are not nearly so commercial, and Eventually, the, 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 the story of Chiming Liang's career is the story of him embracing the anti-commercial side of himself. And so, like, it's, it could be fascinating going back and watching this and reading it as a comment on his own place within the film industry uh, that he's a part of. Now, the Taiwanese New Wave, I can't get into the history of Taiwan because <laughs> it's just, it's very complicated. <laughs> the, the important thing to know is that Taiwan is a island that has constantly been under colonial rule of one kind or another. Uh, the Dutch, uh, Chinese generals, uh, during World War II, it was under the rule of Japan. The the big changeover, the, the really traumatic part of Taiwanese history that most uh, of Taiwanese New Wave films uh, like to focus on is the White Terror, which is the approximately 40 years uh, that the entirety of Taiwan was under martial law. It was very difficult living in Taiwan. Um, there was a lot of paranoia about the infiltration of communists. Uh, watch a movie like A Brighter Summer Day or uh, Hao Shen's City of Sadness. That's a good history of sort of the effect that had on it. And Hao Shei Shen, uh, director of City of Sadness, director of... Uh, Millennium Mambo. Well, yeah, yeah uh, Time to Live, A Time to Die, Flowers of Shanghai. He's, he's probably the most well-known name of the Taiwanese New Wave. The other most well-known name would be Edward Yang, who directed Brighter Summer Day. He directed Yi Yi. Uh, he, he directed The Terrorizers. Is that um, Taipei so, Story? Is that him? Taipei too? Story is... Yep. is that's that's probably one that is uh, easier to see than some of his others. That's a brilliant movie. Um, a lot of these movies, the thing they have in common is that they are uh, historical films and they are looking back at that time period, that sort of traumatic time period of white terror. And Taiwanese New Wave is a very important film movement um, that emerged in the early 80s as white terror was beginning to end. It didn't end officially until 1987, but the sort of strong grip that the government had on the Taiwanese film industry and the kind of movies that could, got, could get made, that loosened a bit in at the start of the early 80s. And you had all of these filmmakers who went through these traumatic experiences uh, who are finally sort of stepping up and saying, like, this is what it is to be Taiwanese. These are the things that we went through. Um, and it really made a big splash into the world cinema scene. There's a very good documentary about it called Flowers of Taipei uh, that I recommend you watch. It's on Mubi if you want to know the history of the Taiwanese New Wave. But suffice to say, um, 
it was this kind of upstart out of nowhere film movement that happened in the 80s that you know made a big splash at, at all these film festivals and stuff and if you watch that documentary flowers of taipei uh chiming liang shows up at the end as like the evil final boss who this entire movie i'm watching it and i'm trying to think like when are they going to bring up chiming liang chiming liang uh it cuts to him. He's sitting in a cafe. He takes a sip from his coffee. He says, I don't think I'm part of the Taiwanese new wave. I just kind of make movies for myself. It's a personal thing, making movies. And then it cuts away. And that's it. <laughs> and, and like, I think that is true. Like, there, there are some who have tried to talk about the second Taiwanese new wave. And they, they put Chiming Liang and someone like Ang Lee uh, together in that way. I don't think of that. Uh, that's a, I think that's a very different thing. I don't think of those two directors as being connected. But... I do think it's worth knowing a little something about the Taiwanese new wave. And it's worth exploring like so many great films by Hao Shei Shen and Edward Yang um, that we, you know, the, the, the films we mentioned are just uh, are really, really good and worth seeing. But like, I think about uh, Chiming Liang's career in opposition to the Taiwanese new wave. He, he makes films that are fiercely personal. He makes films that are fiercely modern. A lot of like, especially Hao Shei Shen's films are like very provincial and his movies are fiercely urban. And Rebels of the Neon God as being his theatrical debut, I always think about it in that way. Yeah, I mean, with, with the directors that you're naming, I, I, I have to say that, like, as somebody that was reading about a film like A Brighter Summer Day, it was impossible to see it for a long time in the U.S. I mean, it was, like, it was bootlegs only to see that. I mean, until Criterion, like, put out the re the restored version, like, within the last 10 years. Or so years. I mean, it was. A, I, I had books that had stills from it, but you couldn't find it. Same with things like the Puppet Master or um, Dust in the Wind. Like a lot of those films from that wave of, uh, you know, Hao Shoshan and Edward Yang. I mean, until you get to things like Yi Yi and the Criterion Collection putting that out, and like it, it got easier. And things like Millennium Mambo got like proper distribution right away. But I feel like they were playing festivals and. Like they were critically well regarded, but like it wasn't even like, yeah, like you couldn't really like easily get them on home video in the U.S. for like a long time. And you still can't get a lot of them, and 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 I think that that's, I don't know when you compare it to something like the French New Wave or the Czech New Wave or like any kinds of you know cinema de look or whatever like in the eighty like people could rent the stuff and make up their own mind or like or or, or see it somehow. But I think that with the Taiwanese New Wave, it was really. Like these films are not getting like a th- like a theatrical push the way maybe some of those earlier new waves got like in select cities and there was just the way most people that were into art films and foreign films saw things by the eighties would have been on home video and it just beca- it was just it's just harder to see them um, even in the DVD era it was hard to see a lot of these films I think even now um, a film like The Puppet Master is a film I've always heard about but it's like you could get like a really kind of muddy like bad transfer like Fox Lorber DVD I think at one point or Wellspring but like you'd always read bad reviews because of the transfer so it's just you're waiting for like companies like Criterion or Arrow or whoever to put them out but um, you know we'd each move to a new format like things get lost in the shuffle I mean when we talk about the home video treatment of, of Simon Lang it's like a lot of key films had like DVDs but then when the DVDs went out of print they just you know they they're on the uh, the back channel sites now and that's how you get them <laughs> uh, absolutely uh, the one thing though that uh, the Taiwanese new wave uh, and uh, chiming Liang have in common is that they were film movements that were mostly appreciated. Uh, I mean, it was a film movement and his body of work, both mostly appreciated outside of Taiwan. There's a, a very uh, funny scene in all the corners of the world where 
this family of ticket scalpers. They're they're having the par- the mom and dad are having an argument in the living room as the child sits and listens in the bed about you know what what are the tastes of Taiwanese audiences? What are the tickets that we should be getting up early and going to scalp? Uh, and they're having an argument about like no one wants to see a city of sadness. They want to see Rocky. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the little kid is you know the little kid even this even this little Taiwanese kid looks up and he sees Sylvester Stallone on his bedroom wall. That is something that is very true of Taiwanese New Wave. Uh, they were criticized in Taiwan that they made movies that were not commercial. Uh, they made movies that were too difficult. They were too slow. Um, they were they were not accessible in a way that alienated uh, domestic audiences. And uh, Chiming Liang, he eventually incorporates the uh, the love that France has for his work. Uh, eventually, becomes a big part of several of his films. Um, he becomes, ba- he, I think, he is an officer of arts and letters uh, for the French mini- French Ministry of Culture. Like he is a almost honorary uh, French citizen. And it is because in Taiwan there is not really a market for the art house film. So that is that is something that the two uh, do share. Um, I wanted to talk to you because this is now the first film we're talking about in depth. We will be talking about Li Kang Sheng and all of them. Um, I find Li Kang Sheng to be such an interesting figure. He he is not uh, a Tony Leung. He is not like this like matinee idol handsome. Uh, charismatic person who like you instantly sit up straight you know the first time you see Chung King Express and go wow who is that um, right uh, the first time I saw some of these movies it didn't occur to me that this was the same person because it was just like I was watching so many Asian language movies all in a row I didn't remember Lee Kang Shang from Rebels of the Neon God it did like despite the fact he has the same parents in the same apartment that like never clicked with me until I like watched a couple more and go oh wait a second but he he has such a very interesting screen presence I was wondering if you had words for like Lee Kang Shang in this movie and other movies like what his presence adds to these films like how he is distinct I mean he was a non-actor the, the interesting thing yeah, about his story I, go ahead well I was just gonna say I feel like not that he's a bad actor, um, but I feel like he doesn't—he doesn't over emote in a way that feels like it reminds me of like the um, maybe like the neo-realist Italian films. Like it's like somebody that can be in a scene and be natural in a scene, but doesn't like or, or, or the Czech New Wave uh, Milos Forman films where he like uses real people that he finds that are not and, and puts them in scenes with professional actors you can sometimes tell that the the people that are not professional actors don't they don't deliver big performance uh like they're very kind of withdrawn and like they um i, I feel like he gets more expressive over time but what it, the films feel like to me is like is like simon lang is is just too fascinated with this guy to like let him go and he keeps making films with him in prominent lead he definitely works in all of them like it's not it's not like a, it's a a, a a drawback to them but it's 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 interesting because it's almost like he's waiting for this guy to be more expressive but instead the kind of low-key energy of this actor kind of impacts the films and they become more withdrawn along with him <laughs> that that is that is really the key and that is factually correct in terms of at least in Factually, whatever uh, it's in terms of what um, Chiming Liang has said in interviews, um, the the way he met uh, uh, Li Kang Sheng is is fascinating because he was at an arcade doing location scouting and he saw this kid that he thought looked like James Dean, which I don't see it, but God bless him. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but uh, but uh, 
he's, he just looked fascinating. And what he was doing in the arcade was he was w- working as a lookout because there was illegal gambling going on in the back room of the arcade. So he already was this like very low-level criminal. And the, he got to know Lee Kang Shang, and they, they spent time together. And Rebels of the Neon God, the plot comes from the fact that Lee Kang Shang was being pressured by his parents to go to cram school, and he was having all this anxiety about uh, his academic life and stuff like that. And that was what inspired this movie. During the filming of this movie, uh, Chiming Liang has told, said in multiple interviews, he was constantly like pulling his hair out because he was trying to get uh, Li Kang Shang to go faster, but the words he kept using was like, no, 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 do it naturally. Like, I don't know why you're going so slow. Do it naturally the way a person would. And then Li Kang Shang replied, well, this is naturally how I am. I am I am just like a slow-paced uh, kind of person. So the pace of this movie, you know, there's a lot of camera movement. There's, you know, cr- uh, there's dolly shots that like go through the arcade. Um, there, you know, there there's the exciting motorcycle scenes, all that sort of thing all that editing, like the energy of this movie feels very distinct from the rest of the work. And that is because the rest of the work is chiming Liang going, okay, I am instead going to change the movie to match Li Kang Shang's energy. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I should stress just, just in case I wasn't clear, like it's not like he ever gives bad performances in any of this. It, it almost feels no, like, no. it almost feels like they're written to work within his abilities as a non-actor. Yeah, exactly. And, you will see on uh, as the films go on other actors who have professional careers who work you know with Edward Yang or or Ang Lee or people like that like when they are in Chiming Liang movies they do not emote <laughs> um uh, and he also works with other non-actors, uh, Lu Yi Ching, who plays uh, Xiao Kang's mother. Mm-hmm. She ran a coffee shop that Chiming Liang was into. And a funny thing about her life story is that she was extremely, uh, I, I was going to say superstitious, which is perhaps uh, a denigrating way of saying spiritual, but she was, <laughs> she was a very spiritual person. And you see throughout these movies that Xiao Kang's mother is constantly reacting to things in, you know, looking for more spiritual approaches. The title Rebels of the Neon God comes from the fact that she thinks that uh, Xiao Kang's misbehavior uh, is because he is sort of a reincarnated trickster god uh, from Chinese folklore, uh, the Neon God. And uh, that energy is it inflicts all of her characters as well. So it, he's not the only non-actor, but even the professional actors, uh, they frequently uh, are very unemotive in a way that feels a stylistic choice, Not again, not a uh, lack of ability. Um the other thing about him, uh, I, I guess I'm going to bring this up now because I don't think I have it in my notes elsewhere. Um, Li Kang Sheng, uh, in addition to being the muse of Chiming Liang, eventually became his domestic partner. Um, they have a queer relationship, which I mean in both senses of the word, which is uh, their relationship kind of complicates your understanding of a simple gay straight binary. And also their, com- their relationship sounds very strange. Um, they live together. They uh, spend all their days together. Uh, Li uh, Kang Sheng is straight, and Chiming Liang is gay. And Chiming Liang, I, I don't know if in interviews he has explicitly said he is romantically in love with Li Kang Sheng, but it is, I I believe, quite obvious <laughs> from the <laughs> from the life of Chiming Liang, from how he has decided to dedicate his entire film career to him, from uh, the films that he makes and and how he shoots Li Kang Sheng. Li Kang Sheng's body. Uh, is on display through so many of these movies. Yeah, it's like the the camera very lovingly gazes uh, at his body, and um, they have made it work. There is interviews I have read where 
they talk about like, oh yeah, um, they'll be in France doing something or another, and Chiming Liang will go to a gay bathhouse, and uh, Li Kang Shang will just hang out outside and smoke, and then <laughs> Chiming Liang will come back out and say, all right, let's go get food, <laughs> and it's like well, that is the nature of their relationship. It's, well, the, well, have you seen? I assume you've seen everything I've seen, but have you seen Afternoon? The twenty. Unfortunately, I, I was not able to see Afternoon. Okay, I have watched that. It's mm. I, it's it's interesting, but it's um, and it's included um for anyone that wants to see it. It might be streaming, but it, I know that it's definitely included as a bonus feature for the Blu-ray for days um, from Film Movement, I think, put that out. I think it's Film Movement, but it's um, but the, the, the Blu-ray that you can find for days has the entirety of, uh, of that film, which is over two hours long. Like, it's a feature-length feature film, but it is just a an extended conversation with the two of them sitting at a table talking and it's mostly it's 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 mostly Simon Lang talking and you know occasional like you know interjections from uh you know from Li Kang uh Shang but it's it's um it's interesting because yeah he does seem like he's completely in love with that actor and that actor feels like you know he accepts it and it, it's just like he's very kind of taciturn it's it's a very it's very strange and you can't I mean, they've they worked together for decades, so it's like they clearly have like a a closeness and a love, but it's like it's such a strange dynamic, just like on camera, just the two of them engaging with one another. I I I, I might make sense to contrast them with someone else, and it brings me to another thing I want to bring up: the relationship that uh, not relationship, I should say, I should say the working relationship that Chiming Liang has with Li Kang Sheng in terms of. Li Kang Shang constantly appearing in these films uh, as sh- this character Shao Kang. Again, uh, debatable whether or not any of these movies are connected. The only undebatable one is that what time is it there? And The Skywalk is Gone and The Wayward Cloud are three movies that about the same characters. Uh, the Wayward Cloud is a, sequ- a direct sequel to What Time Is It There, which w- we can talk about a little later. But generally speaking, there's not uh, anything connecting the events of any of these films. But there is a parallel here between uh, Francois Truffaut and Jean-Pierre Liod, but the very vital difference here is that Francois Truffaut made many films without Jean-Pierre Liod, and Jean-Pierre Liod made many films without Francois Truffaut, <laughs> um, which is not the case here. An actor relationship that I thought of, I, I thought of um, El Hedy Ben Salem, or Salam, the, uh, the actor from uh, Ali Fears the Soul and a few of other Fassbender films, but he was... Fassbender's, you know, lover and muse and lead actor for for a minute, and I think about had that dynamic been like carried out through the arc of Fassbender's career. I mean, it kind of flamed out kind of uh, quickly, but you know that that kind of dynamic is what I was thinking of also because like that guy, he he's not always the most expressive actor, but there's like a there's like some kind of charisma about him. And then the, ca- the the director's camera clearly loves him, and you can feel that, and that that kind of carries those films in a way and i feel like that you can get that here too um although he plays he doesn't like he does play like a similar character in a number of films but like there's a variety to what he gets to do over the course of the career i mean we can talk i mean as we'll talk about i mean something like stray dogs just for one example is a lot more demanding part for him than something like rebels of the neon god i think oh yes absolutely I, I, I guess there are also uh, several examples examples of directors who are married to actresses, people like Fellini and uh, Juliana Messina or, you know, Rob Zombie and Sherry Moon Zombie, people like that. Bergman and Lee Volman, yeah. But because of the nature of their relationship and because they 
the entire body of work is dedicated to him. And the plots of these movies reflect the things that happen in Lee Kang Sheng's real life in a way that, uh, you know, again, like you said, like he, he puts him in situations where he can be natural because he doesn't have to stretch as an actor or anything. It's just, I can't think of anything else quite like it. Uh, the, the last sort of element of Rebels of the Neon God that I want to discuss in terms of uh, Chiming Liang's work is the central uh, visual metaphor that he returns to again and again, uh, which is the use of water. Um, <laughs> water flowing, water uh, sort of seeping in, water dripping through walls, water coming through holes in the ceiling, um, people drinking glasses of water, people drinking out of water bottles. In Rebels of the Neon God, it's sort of the one visual element of the film that feels outside of the realm of a somewhat uh, documentary-like uh, objective eye that the camera has where this apartment just keeps flooding and draining uh, periodically uh, with three inches of water. You're just constantly seeing uh, puddles start leaking across the tiles, things floating, cigarette butts. Uh, the, this is specifically the apartment of Achi. To a certain extent, like on a pure narrative level, it is sort of demonstrating what a bad you know, apartment building it is. It's also an apartment building where the elevator keeps stopping at the fourth floor every time, which is a fun detail. Um, but it's just sort of like it, we, are, we are demonstrating the squalor of his life and, and uh, sort of his lower class status. But the expressive nature of the way Chiming Liang uses water in this and you know, many much more pointedly in other films is it goes far beyond uh, just narrative device and becomes uh, I don't so I have my own interpretation and I have my own sort of unifying theory of chiming Liang and water. Uh, but I, I did want to know what you thought about the use of water like throughout his uh, body of work. Um, you know, I never thought about it in terms of like a symbolic meaning. I just thought it was an aesthetic that he felt like just drawn to, you know, incorporating that into the stories. Um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of flooded apartments and, and things floating away and bodies in water and droughts. And I, I mean, I, I, I did notice it, but I, I, as far as like what he was trying to say, you know, with that recurring image, I hadn't thought about like any kind of greater... What, why, what do you see in it? I, so I don't, I don't believe it is like... It means the exact same thing in every single work, but generally speaking, I tend to find the water as an image of sort of this unrepressible emotion. The I, the way water works in these movies so often is that like you can't stop it from coming in. It's going to come in. It's going to leak out. You know, he he shoves a towel down the drain in his kitchen in Rebels of the Neon God. This drain in the kitchen is where the water is coming up from, um, and you just see the this towel uncoil like a snake and float away. So many of these movies, uh, the river, there is the leak in the uh, father's bedroom uh, that gets more and more severe. Um, whole, the downstairs apartment, you have all this water and, uh, and other bodily fluids uh, coming down from the hole in uh, Lee Kang Shang's apartment um, into the woman's apartment. and But also it's constantly raining every single day, every single shot. The only, for a movie that has so little dialogue, what you're constantly hearing in the hole is the patter of rain. Um, well, and even in the river, you mentioned, you didn't mention that uh, Lee Kang-Sheng gets uh, sick from from acting in the water. Um, I mean, yes. Yeah, because I mean, it, there's like, there's a danger or a toxic quality to it as well. Right. And so to me, it is this like, uh, it, it functions as a barometer of, of longing, of repression, of 
um, intense dissatisfaction. I know in uh, an interview, Chiming Liang has said that he kind of views people like plants and like people need love. Uh, like plants need water, and like when he when you see a ton of water around a person in one of his movies, that's that's a person who's drying up. <laughs> um, and I think about that. I think about just like the, the these are so many movies about people who desperately need each other. Generally speaking, you have all these misconnections, and you have and they're just infinite longing. Which again, for a gay man who is in love with a straight man, like it makes sense that he has this sort of like endless wellspring of longing and and uh, and desire. Specifically, the thing about the image that is compelling is that it can't be repressed, is that it's always going to break through. Um, in the river, the father sets up these like elaborate devices of plastic uh, sheets in order to catch the water and like filter it out somewhere else. But then it breaks, so you have to get something else. Uh, like the one of the grossest and like most squalid images in any of these movies is in the hole when the woman i forget the name of the actress uh who who lives in the apart the lower apartment but she just buys like giant costco sized things of napkins and her whole house just becomes this like disgusting nest of wet napkins as she's like trying to sop up water <laughs> with all these disposable napkins and like there is this just feeling of like you it can't be dealt with the, uh, as someone who watched Rebels of the Neon God initially and just un- appreciated on, on its most base pleasures, like that that image of water was the thing that sort of made me stand up a little straighter and go like, I think there's something going on here. Uh, I mean, part of the other thing that's going on in Rebels of the Neon God is that every single character is just full of self-loathing <laughs> in a way. Like this was, this is not my favorite Chiming Liang movie, but this was for a long time. And a lot of it was just like strongly relating to all of that uh, self-loathing. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think when I think about his cinema and I know that there's lots of exceptions, but I think of unrequited love and I think of boredom, <laughs> you know, like um, for the characters, yeah. I, I think of like characters that are like trapped <laughs> Or just lost, and I think that 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 feeling seems to in, impact so many of them uh, for me. And that's always kind of tricky. I mean, I, I, this this is something I was going to say. Like when we were like first setting out to do this, one of the earliest episodes of Directors Club that I heard was you and Jim getting into an argument over somewhere the uh, <laughs> Sofia Coppola movie, and I think about. The, the trick of how do you tackle boredom in the lives of the characters without boring the viewer. And I know that you've recently did a new podcast with Jim about that particular film, and, and I won't spoil what your new take on it is. But, uh, you know, I, I, but I think about that with the whole notion of slow cinema, like because this is something that I think I don't know that there's any real crossovers from that group of filmmakers into like a big success commercially i mean there are certain films like uh satan tango or goodbye dragon in you know i think um i don't know if uncle Boonmi is kind of considered part of that um i mean there, there are certain films that like are well known and like art house hits in quotation I, I think, marks i think it. even people who are casually interested in art house films have seen stalker uh it would be an example of i that. guess so but i mean I st- but but i think that um Tarkovsky comes. I mean, he, he's working in genre. He's a little bit further back in time. I'm, I'm thinking of like that. Sure. I'm thinking of like that wave of films that come at the end of the '90s and into the early aughts. Yes, 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 yes. But I, I, I always felt like, you know, where we are now, you know, with, I think, I think attention spans are probably 
on the whole growing shorter. I think theatrical exhibition is more and more uh, on shaky ground and certainly for uh, for non-franchise uh, blockbuster type cinema that I think that like there's something uh, like a filmmaker like Simon Lang, like it, it almost feels like in such defiance like, the kind of work he does is in such defines everything that's happening now as far as, like, how the medium is evolving that it's going to be interesting to me to see how... Because I, I think that people will discover, and like, new generations will fall in love with his films, but it, it feels like such... Um, I mean, it always felt like a little bit of an oppositional kind of thing, but I feel like it only gets further and further from where I think the medium is going to go if it's going to meet the viewer at their level in terms of like what they can engage with. And I could be wrong. I'm not trying to sound like an old man or whatever. I, I, I just, I just feel like yeah. cinema could potentially move in a more small, quick bite-sized direction. And Simon Liang is the kind of person that would have you unwrap the sandwich and finish that entire thing in the shot before he cuts to the next shot. <laughs> like he's just somebody that is patient about witnessing an action. He's not quite as extreme in the Rebels of the Neon God era, but I mean, obviously, as we go forward, like he's somebody that lets scenes play out in unbroken shots that feels very kind of counterintuitive to what, you know, commercial filmmaking kind of trains people to to accept. And I think that even at the time of Rebels of Neon God, I mean, this is before you really have the influence of Michael Bay on cinema, which really kind of happens a little bit later. But I think it's just accepted that shot lengths become cut like commercials or like videos. And like, it goes beyond montage, like scenes, like, like, like training montage kind of cutting to like the entire thing being cut that way, which I think comes more from Bay than Scott. But I mean, I think, but maybe both of them kind of in parallel. But like, I think that, Something like Goodbye Dragon Inn might feel the most approachable to me, even though it's one of the slowest, because it's got a compelling... Well, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves as far as like why, but I mean, I think that, you know, there, there's there's a cult following that's growing for that film. And I mean, I, you know, we're talking in the uh, period where Jean Dielman just <laughs> topped the sight and sound poll. Like, so there's, there's definitely like a reckoning with slower paced cinema that continues to happen, but it's just... I don't know. It, it, it watching all these films in quick succession for this. I was thinking about like how this is so counter to where I feel like things are headed in the larger culture. But right. I mean, there there is a, there's always been an audience for films that are deliberate and considered and 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 austere. But it's just I don't know. I mean, these are these are even more demanding than I think what Tarkovsky or Brasson or Antonioni were up to in the '60s and '70s. You know, I, I feel totally uh, unqualified to ever make judgments about the taste of the masses or anything because, like, I'm, I've, I've seen Stray Dogs five times. Like, I, like yeah. my brain is broken. I watched, uh, you know, we're going to talk about what time is it there. I watched What Time Is It There this most recent time, and I said, how could anyone think this is slow? This movie just keeps moving, and it's only because I was watching so many Chiming Liang <laughs> movies that that didn't have any dialogue that what, what time is it there has a surprisingly a lot of dialogue compared. Yeah. And so like my, my brain is broken in that way, but also I have ADHD. There's not any movies that I don't stop and pause and then look at my phone or like get up and get a bathroom and then get some water. And then I forget what I was doing. And then I see the pause movie and I go, oh, okay. Like I just, I, I've seen, like I said, I've seen stray dogs five times. I've seen it all the way through without falling asleep twice. Um, yeah. I saw it in the theater, and in this theater, I started to nod off uh, during the last 20 minutes. And 
I think that's fine. I mean, Chiming Liang has specifically said, like, oh, yeah, I don't mind if people fall asleep in my movies. I fall asleep at the movie theater all the time. But, like, I think that is also... Chiming Liang is one of these directors. On the Wong Kar Wai episode, we talked about people like Spike Lee or Quentin Tarantino who understand that their personality is part of the auteur and, like, part of the reason they get to keep making the movies they're making is because they're sell- selling themselves as a brand. And Chiming Liang is 100% that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit later. Uh, Wong Kar Wai goes into oh, yeah. sort of luxury brands and making commercials for Gucci and stuff like that. Chiming Liang basically has the same arc, but just to a different bunch of rich people <laughs> that he sells his brand to. Um, but like... Um, I, I guess I guess uh, you can't necessarily take anything he says in an interview at face value. He's very manipulative. There's a really funny story uh, in this book. Uh, Taiwan film directors, a treasure island. Uh, um, there's a very funny story about a, a common thing he would do at, at film festivals is he would break down and cry over the fact that he couldn't get his movie seen and distributed and that in Taiwan uh, box offices were like, you know, shutting him out and they wouldn't show his movies. And he's just, he's asking everyone who's in the audience for the Q and a or whatever to like, please tell someone, please, I have no way of getting on to see my movies. And it was this like bomb that he is emotional bomb. He would drop in this audience because some people had seen him pull these waterworks like seven times before and understood it was an act. And then some, and they would start laughing. And then other people who thought it was real would be scandalized by people laughing at this poor, broken, crying man who just wants his movies to be seen. (laughs) And it, and and he was, and it was like an example. The, the book goes on to sort of exam his films through the lens of camp. And it, it was used as an example of like the camp of chiming Liang. So Anything he says in interviews, you should automatically be a little bit suspect. But uh, at any rate, he says he doesn't mind if people fall asleep in his movies. I fall asleep during his movies. I don't mind that I do. I have fallen asleep during his movies. Um, I I pause, you know, I pause a Daniel Craig James Bond movie and get distracted and look something up just as often as I do uh, during the whole. Um, so I just I just feel like I'm not qualified to answer what kind of future uh, these films have for an audience uh, or, but I do think that any world that caters to one sensibility is going to foster in a certain kind of person uh, and antagonistic anti that. Um, oh yeah. There's, I agree there's always going to be yeah. movements that are, they don't just come out of, Oh, these people just happen to want to make slow films. It's these people hate fast films and they want to do whatever they can to reject what they see as toxic or whatever. So I think there's always going to be an audience for slow cinema. Um, but I, as we, as we tackle the career of Chiming Liang, we might see this, this, this audience maybe, uh, doesn't exist inside the multiplex or even the art house. Um, I, I, I think, I think we need to move on. Um, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the next film we're going to be talking about is from 2001, What Time Is It There? Uh, this sort of period in between 1992 and 2003, uh, where he made Goodbye Dragon in, Chiming Liang likes to sort of dismiss this period of his work as the first 10 years. And he'll talk about, oh, yeah, people like the first 10 years. But what I'm, you know, he eventually grew to have very different sensibilities. And when you see uh, programs of his movies, you're often seeing programs of movies that can't start with Goodbye Dragon Inn and the films after because he is not as interested in these movies. But I will say that all of these films of the first 10 years are absolutely spectacular. I believe they are all great. I We are not talking about these movies in depth. That is not a reason to uh, think that they are lesser works. 
Um, but I am going to go through sort of the next uh, nine years of his career in between 1992 and 2001. Um, if Rebels of the Neon God put Chiming Liang on the radar of the world outside of Taiwan, it was the work of the following six years that solidified his reputation. Because in 1994, he released Vive L'Amour, which was a film about three people unwittingly sharing an apartment that tackled gentrification, homelessness, queer desire, and, you guessed it, loneliness. Um, that one won the Golden Lion. Uh, at the Venice International Film Festival, as, we as well as winning Best Picture at Taiwan's Golden Horse Awards. Um, it also set a tone and template that the next several of years, years of his career would, would follow. In 1997, Chiming Liang followed up Vive L'Amour with The River, which is a film about a family divided and isolated from each other in the midst of a health crisis involving a mysterious ailment of the son's neck. Um, this won the Silver Bear Grand Jury Prize at the Berlin International Film Festival, further cementing Chiming Liang's legacy in the West, particularly in Europe. This is particularly relevant to Chai's next film, 1998's The Hole, which was funded by French money as part of a project called 2000 Seen By... Dot, dot, dot. Uh, it was a project that was designed to produce films that depicted the coming of the millennium from the perspective of 10 different countries. He was the only Asian filmmaker involved. Uh, the Hole is about an apocalyptic pandemic of an illness that makes people act like cockroaches. And the growing relationship between an upstairs and downstairs neighbor of an apartment building when a hole develops between their two units. Chai's now familiar rhythms and plots about isolation and the difficulty of human connection were joined by a whole new element in this film uh, that would appear in future films. The unabashed camp of musical numbers set to corny 60s pop of Hong Kong singer Grace Chang. After Hole, he made a short experimental documentary called Fish Underground, A Conversation with God, which I don't personally believe is particularly notable as a work on its own, but it is worth noting that it marks the start of a trend that would continue for the rest of his career, where in between his features, he would experiment with form and aesthetics in short films that often mixed documentary and fiction, avant-garde and narrative. These works would slowly become more significant than his features as his career goes on. Um, eventually, Chiming Liang uh, becomes more of a fine artist uh, in touch with museums than movie theaters. Uh, and we're just like, we can't cover installation art when we weren't there. We can't, you know, we can't cover his sculptures or his paintings or, or his uh, plays because we just have no way of seeing any of that. Um, so we are mostly going to focus on his movies. But it's important to know that the career of Chiming Liang slowly steps away from narrative theatrical cinema and towards uh, something more avant-garde and uh, quote-unquote fine art. They uh, represent a large enough portion of his filmography that I thought they should be mentioned. Chai spent the 90s establishing his reputation on an international stage, emerging with a clear voice, a unique style, and an escalating sense of ambition. And in 2001, he would springboard into what many consider his masterpiece, What Time Is It There? Um, what Time Is It There? is another one of the movies that features Li Kang-sheng as Xiao Kang and features uh, Liu Yi-ching as his mother and Miao Tian as his father. They live in the same apartment they lived in in The River and in Rebels of the Neon God. In this film... Uh, after the first scene, Miao Tian dies and his ashes are taken to a columbarium. And it is about the grief that Xiao Kang and his mother go through over the father's death. Uh, and particularly how that mutates into something stranger when Xiao Kang sells his father's watch to a young woman, Chiang Chi, who is going to go to France and wants the watch because it is able to tell two times at once. So she can have both French and Taiwanese time on her wrist at all times. This morning... Uh, and 
takes starts taking stranger and stranger shapes as Xiao Kang becomes obsessed with France and starts running around the city of Taipei, changing all of the clocks to French time. Meanwhile, the mother thinks that the father's soul has been reincarnated in their uh, pet fish. Um, so she starts uh, also experiencing grief in strange ways. Xiang Qi uh, feels displacement as she lives in France and realizes that she can't connect to anyone there and sort of faces culture shock from how different France is to Taiwan. I, I think an important thing to know about what time is it there is it really does, to me, feel like a culmination of the previous three films because, like we said, Rebels of the Neon God, kind of uh, outside of most of his work in terms of how conventional it is, in terms of how much dialogue there is, camera movement, um, you know, emotions after, uh, stated... Each subsequent film after Rebels of the Neon God would add something into Chiming Liang's tool belt that plays into uh, uh, what time is it there. Vive L'Amour is a movie that is it, it's it's a it's a difficult movie because at any given point it is very hard to say what any character is thinking or why they are doing what they are doing which which you might think is just like that's foundational how you tell a story but there's more than one way to tell a story and Chiming Liang tell, tends to tell stories where you do not get an interview into the psychology of a character or rather you are invited to um to reflect on what that inner what that inner life might be but uh you almost never get uh, direct information about how they're feeling or what they're doing or why. And Vive L'Amour is the first movie that really embraces that. The River is a movie that um, is more ambitious visually because Vive L'Amour and Rebels of the Young God both have a very objective camera. They're both shot on location and they both uh, mostly use lighting that is meant to appear natural. Obviously, it's a feature film. There's always lights and stuff, but um, none of the lighting seems particularly expressive. In the river, there's several sequences that are bathed in shadow. Um, a lot of sequences take place in bathhouses, and those bathhouses are sort of strange, surreal, nightmarish uh, places with uh, super dark shadow and just like light highlights on bodies. Um, the The lighting in the river is a thing that visually he had never attempted before and it it feels more ambitious than the previous films in that way the whole is a movie like i said i mentioned the musical numbers the whole is where he sort of introduces elements of surrealism uh like out and out surrealism into his films he introduces uh the world that you're seeing is not uh the what we may necessarily think of the real world uh he opens up the ability to tell a story that exists more in the uh, internal world or the spiritual world, which is relevant in what time is it there? Because at the end of the film, Meow Ten uh, comes back as a ghost and there's just no, there's no other interpretation. It's there, there are ghosts in this film um, there and there are ghosts <laughs> in the next film. We're going to be talking about uh, goodbye dragon in as well. And that would continue um, the, there, there was much less dedication to a realistic objective documentary kind of point of view of the camera all of these things come together into what time is it there, which in some ways is like extremely similar to Vive L'Amour. It is these, or The River, it is these stories of these uh, people who are all in each other's lives but are not communicating well to each other, who are all going through things in isolation, in, cr in crowded urban environments. Um, the sort of dichotomy between the loneliness they feel and the just masses of people and bodies that are in any given shot of the movie traveling in the background or whatever uh, is one of the like point of visual motifs. I absolutely adore what time is it there? Bill, how do you feel about what time is it there? 
Uh, I love it, but I, it's it's one like I said when I first saw it, having no context for what he does, I found it interesting but hard to totally approach it. I mean, I hadn't seen anything like it at the time, and I think now, I think it's funny in that it sets you up for a romantic film that it 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 it's like you have the meet cute. And now he's doing that quirky thing where he's changing all the clocks to like, you know, like uh, align with the time where she is, but they never meet again. <laughs> and for the rest of the film, like it, it sets you up for a certain kind of story that, that it doesn't aim to pay off that way. Like it's just, a, it's you, you, they've had that interaction and maybe they'll meet in other <laughs> Simon Lang films, but they, they won't, uh, they won't meet again at the end of this one. It's just, they're going to have their parallel kind of narratives. But um, it, it, it also is funny to me watching it again in that it um, it points towards Goodbye Dragon Inn right down to him going to that same theater and having his own kind of uh, run-in with the cruising culture of that theater. Like it feels like it's pointing towards, what is that short film? The Skywalk is Gone with the characters. Like they're, like those characters come back again in Wayward Cloud. Like those 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 protagonists the story's not ending with this film for those characters and the parents feel like the parents from rebel <laughs> rebels of the neon god like there's so much that kind of connects it to other films um but if you don't have that context it's not quite as rich as it is if you have that context which is why i think about when i think about like the the rapturous responses that a film as demanding as Days will get, it's because it's being reviewed by people that have that that grounding and that, and that history, oftentimes with what he does, and so they're bringing things to it that someone coming in off the street might not have that same same set of tools to to uh, to unpack it. I guess does that make sense? I mean, do yeah. you agree with me there? Oh yeah, abso- no? absolutely. I I think the most astounding thing about Chiming Liang's body of work is that he keeps hitting these same notes over and over again, and yet every film has such a distinct identity, and every film feels like an incomplete part of this larger puzzle. The fact that uh, the ending of this film is not a conclusion of anything uh, involving Li Kang Shang's character, or Chen Xiang Chi's character, or Liu Yi Ching's character, all of their narratives are left unsatisfied. They are in the same state they are at the beginning, where they are displaced and mourning, and they don't. It doesn't feel like any of them have learned anything. Um, they're static characters. The ending of What Time Is It There is a cl- is a uh, conclusion to is Miao Tian's character, the dead father. You know, you see him in France somehow. And, and he sort of walks off into the horizon, uh, you know, John Wayne and the searcher style. Uh, you just sort of assume like, and you know, he, he goes out into the clouds or he goes in the afterlife or whatever. But uh, the, you, the fact that you have all of this open-ended <laughs> um, and you don't get the ending, you don't get the ending of these characters. And then also in the sequel, Wayward Cloud, we do not see uh, Lu Yi Ching, Shao Kang's mother. Um, we, if we, if we are going to assume that these are the same characters in all these movies that have the same, uh, same names, uh, we don't get Xiao's mother's, uh, and until, uh, Visage, uh, in 2009. Um, (laughs) and it's, it's definitely, it's a body of work that it does work like 
not a puzzle in that it's like, ah, oh, this is the key. When David Lynch put this key, blue key here, that meant this and this and that. <laughs> you know, like it's not a YouTube explainer sort of a thing. Um, where yeah. it's like once you see them all, then you get it. It's it, but it's there are emotional resonances throughout that just sort of intensify and amplify. So it's it's definitely like I liked it just because I like this. I like. I mean, I adore Chiming Liang because I adore Chiming Liang's per, uh, sensibilities. Like, I just think his aesthetic taste. Yeah. Um, the first time I saw this movie, I liked it because A, it kind of felt like Rebels of the Neon God, but B, it's a beautiful. It, the, the colored lighting throughout this movie is just absolutely gorgeous. This is the one... Uh, I, I emailed you. I was reading a book about <laughs> slow cinema and Chiming Liang's place in it, and someone in that book built a diagram that was like, here's the number of shots in every movie. Here's how long each movie is. Here's the average length of each shot. And here's how many of those shots move and uh, versus our static shots. And What Time Is It There is the only film of his that has no moving camera whatsoever. It's, a, it's completely static throughout. And that was a, uh, a choice by uh, Chiming Liang. Uh, he, he's working with a French cinematographer in this film. Um, and together they were saying, well... You know, it's, it's, it's sort of like a byproduct of filmmaking is you have your day where you have to get these many setups and these many shots. And the more setups and shots you need to get, the less you can pay attention to any one shot. If you're shooting coverage, that's why you get to, you know, films that have a lot of handheld coverage. There's not a single look. There's not a single image in the movie that looks that good or interesting or distinct on its own because the effect is about the montage of all the angles together. No one, you know, really sculpted this one composition. This movie is all perfectly sculpted compositions and the highlights and the shadows and the colored lighting in the house where they have the red light bulb, but you have the blue light from the fish tank um, and and the green color of the apartment and the uh, movie theater, the dark of the movie theater and the like everything about this movie is just so gorgeous that I was rapturous about it on pure like surface level. Uh it, it means so much more to me now that I've seen it all as part of body work. But like, uh, I, I always love this movie just because it is just like so pretty. Yeah. I think, I think when you put it aside, the rest of them, it does not have maybe the transgressive elements of the river or wayward cloud or the musical numbers. It does not have like the, the things that feel like not, not, not the break with the rhythm, but that, that feel like, that jolt you out of the kind of serene storytelling that he's kind of getting into with this and with uh, Goodbye Dragon. And like, it feels like, um, I don't know the word well-rounded is, you know, but, but it feels like if, if you, if you, if you graduated past uh, Rebels of the Neon God, as far as like getting your feet wet with what he does, I think that this is probably the second most accessible film. I would agree. I think there are definitely elements of the river that are, very difficult to sit with um uh not just not just the uh incestual content but also just like the 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 physical pain that comes with the with the neck illness it it can be very unpleasant to watch and yeah i mean the 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 things that deal with like physical ailment i mean that's also in something that you have in days and in uh, i don't want to sleep alone like i mean there's none of that and there's none of the um i I mean the whole I, i i don't what to say about that other than it feels like I feel like a million people have probably brought up how timely it is in the pandemic era. Like it was very forward thinking in that <laughs> kind of kind of story, but it feels like um, not like a one joke movie because it's got a lot of jokes. But like I, you know, it it, it feels like there is a high concept com- comedic premise to it in a way that I don't feel like applies to a lot of his other movies. Like his his comedy is a little bit more. Uh, 
comedy of manners maybe in, yeah. in most of the other ones and this one feels like there's a visual gag and it's like it could it could be a laurel and hardy kind of concept yeah. <laughs> roger ebert there's the one shot uh where you see the giant clock on the outside of the building and you see him reaching down with a broom or a long stick or something to oh, change the hands on the giant clock roger ebert a, said that was safety last. Day last yeah i yeah, guess yeah, i guess yeah. that would be yeah yeah would, the, him, him with the clock was the first image i saw from one of his movies i remember that being a still that was circulating for that movie and i thought like what could what could it be? I assumed it wasn't like a reference to Flavor Flav. I just didn't know what you know <laughs> what the idea what the idea was. Yeah, and, or or the guy who comes on to him uh, in that bathroom, which we will see again later in Goodbye Dragon, and and bursts open the door, and he has the clock over his dick, and and the the, the clock hand is like uh, very suggestively twitching. Like that's all that's yeah. all uh, physical visual humor in a way that uh, sits outside of. Uh, the funny elements yeah. of a vive la more kind of stuff i mean is when i mean it opens with a quite long unbroken shot of the father that is probably one of the only times it feels like oh this is slow cinema but it really does not stay in that in that register for very long i feel like there's a lot of comedy to it um and i this is an odd question, maybe, but um, I, I, it doesn't totally apply to this particular film, which is not, well, I guess it is kind of sexual in places, but um, I was thinking about how there's a lot of either like rough sexuality or forced sexuality or like just un- unpleasant sexuality in the films that seems to go back even to like the, um, like even some of the TV work. But like, just like the, but, but we, even we talk about things like Rebels of the Neon God and like the, um, like the slightly violent, maybe closeted character. Like there's, and we get to something like Wayward Cloud. And I remember when Rosenbaum trashed it and Rosenbaum was a big champion of most of his other films, but he said, at least in that film, that he felt like the director hated the sexuality of it or hated the sex of it. Do you... What do you think about that side of it? I mean, as far as like these are films that either seem to be about rejection or degradation or like there, there's it's I mean, not not always. I mean, there's healthy sexuality in it, too. But I feel like there's also a lot of darker currents swimming through a lot of it. And I don't know if that's something that you notice watching them all in together. I mean, I certainly think of moments like Stray Dogs. I think about like, I mean, the standout scene for me is is, is a scene that really kind of unleashes this like really hidden frightening side of the character um with a thankfully with a with you know like a head of lettuce you know or cabbage or whatever to like take it out on but um that there's a lot of pent-up sexual violence in the films that i think also kind of give it like a tension that i don't associate with quote-unquote slow cinema no it's true sex is really important to the work of chiming liang and i find that in his work it's sex is something that people they can't help it they need it they it's it's just a it's sort of a basic fundamental need or whatever but sex is something that people try to use to fix something that sex can't fix so in the in the sort of worldview of chiming liang sex is inherently dissatisfying in some way because it is a it is a sort of replacement for something deeper that can't be addressed and i feel like a lot of that rejection and uh, anxiety and there's there's a sense of like self-loathing when you look at like Lee Kang Shang and Vive L'Amour who's masturbating under the bed mm-hmm. that the other two characters are having sex in um the river 
the the sex scenes in the river, even even the ones outside of the incestual uh, sex act that appears at, at the at the climax of that movie, they feel unsatisfying, and they and they they feature people sort of sitting in the dark for a long time afterwards. And there's no there's no sense of contentment or peace after the sex act. There's no like afterglow or, or pillow talk or anything like that. It is sex is used as a way to explore the basic uh, emotional needs of people that aren't being met. And I do think you you can... He pushes that in Wayward Cloud to the, all the way to the point where I think that is like a sex-negative film. I think that is a a film where in the... So in the world of Wayward Cloud, uh, there is a drought, but for some reason there are so many watermelons. Uh, watermelons are so plentiful that people are using watermelon juice in place of all of the uh, uses they would normally use water. So it's like... People have built an entire culture around watermelons. People have built like, oh, yeah, if you're courting someone, you can give people different colored watermelons based on, you know, if you're a student, you know, these they're giving these kids are giving each other different watermelons based on how they feel. And like people are drinking glasses of watermelon juice and people are bathing in watermelon and and water is this like precious uh, resource that uh, the, the first time that uh, Xiang Chi and Xiao Chang Kang see each other again, it is because she steals his water bottle. He's fallen asleep on a public bench and she steals his water bottle to get his water and only afterwards realizes, like, starts to feel bad because she realizes, hey, this is the guy who sold <laughs> me that watch all those years ago. To me, uh, Wayward Cloud is a movie about pornography specifically being, like, this, like, very unhealthy, sugary uh, replacement for a basic element that we all need as human beings to survive, but we, but we're instead feeding ourselves something that doesn't really quite address it. Like we're all masturbating to pornography, and that's not actually emotional connections. And in fact, that's making it harder to connect to people emotionally. And that movie has an extremely disgusting, vulgar, violent sexuality at the end when um, the Japanese porn actress uh, is found in an elevator, either comatose or dead. Um, the movie doesn't really make uh bother to distinguish between the two and it's equally disgusting either way these these pornographers sort of just drag her body back to a bed and start making a movie with her lifeless body and like it's just it's just like a really ugly scene that is sort of the payoff of what the entire rest of the movie was about which is people build these sexualities uh around pornography which i think he is anti-porn i think that movie is very anti-porn which is not my personal feel i think pornography is complicated but there, I think there's a lot of very uh, valid uses and uh artistic uh you know validity to to pornography in a lot of contexts or whatever but um i believe that chiming lang is very anti-porn and he views that kind of casual sexuality as being an insufficient replacement um for uh, what people actually need. And I think in this movie, like you get Xiao Kang, you know, getting propositioned by uh, a woman. She's either a, a hooker or she's just sort of a woman on the street. But either way, she just out and out. He's sleeping in the back of his car and she's like, you want to fuck? And they have sex, but it is immediately followed by him getting robbed by her walking off with yeah. his suitcase full of watches. Uh, it is this like you cannot trust the sexual act. The sexual act will ultimately make leave you in a worse position than you were before. Um, I think that is generally true across most of his work. Um, I but also it's not it's not a scold. It's not a moralistic like you should be chased either. Um, I think one of the most moving images in any of his work is uh, in um, I don't want to sleep alone when the 
young couple, uh, the waitress, uh, who is also sort of this uh, maid and caretaker for the woman who owns the cafe, and she takes care of the that woman's comatose son. Um, she falls in love with uh, Lee Kang Shang's character, um, and there is a scene where there's some sort of this is again a, another sort of pandemic in imagery that pops up a lot in these movies, uh, where there was some sort of underground fire that has uh, put the entire city of Bangkok in smoke. And they are wearing gas masks, improvised gas masks. Again, like in a post-COVID world, the idea of someone like rubber banding a fucking empty instant ramen noodle bowl to their face as like a gas mask is like, yeah, I was there. I was there in April 2020 when people were just like wearing bandanas <laughs> around their faces and shit. Um, that, that, that seems very funny, but like there's a sequence in that where they're trying to make love in this abandoned building and they're surrounded by smoke and they're trying to kiss each other, but they're both wearing gas masks and they're sort of just smashing their mask into each other and they'll try to pull up the gas mask and start kissing, but then they start gagging and coughing. So they'll put the mask back on and they're desperately trying to make it work. And it is, that to me is like one of the most powerful images in any of his movies. Cause it is to me this, like the world is this horrible, hostile place where there's so much suffering and so many things are going wrong. And the one thing that you can do to sort of shut out how bad the world can get is to fuck. And like, these are two characters who are trying to, you know, forget about how hard their lives are and how despondent uh, they are and how terrible the positions in this world are like, you know, uh, financially, that is a movie that's very concerned with gentrification and homelessness and, and these uh, sort of migrant workers, this and like chiming Liang hundred percent understands the inclination to sex and he understands the importance of that sex to these two characters and why they are doing it. It's it, he doesn't sort of object to it on moralist. These people aren't married and don't know each other well enough. He just, he, I think he finds casual sex, uh, to be largely insufficient, but also that given the way he has talked about his own sexuality, his own sex life, uh, and the story that I, I read about, you know, uh, Lee Kang Shang waiting outside of a bathhouse as, uh, you know, uh, Simon Liang does what he needs to do. Like that's also the world he lives in. Yeah. So I, I find sex in his movies very important and very fascinating and, and complicated, but I do think ultimately, uh, he is not a very sex positive person. <laughs> No, it was just thinking. I was thinking about like over the course of the films, like the, they often uh, link sexuality with some kind of negative repercussions. Um, not always as extreme as the river, and you know that's. I, I like plenty of films that do that. You know, it, it's just kind of something I noticed uh, that uh, I, I was wondering if that was something that reflected him as a person, like dealing with like a. Uh, you know, a hostile culture to his sexuality and like being in love with uh, somebody that couldn't quite reciprocate up to, to all the needs that he has. And so it's like being ch like he's channeling those feelings into art. Uh, but I, you know, not trying to get too psychoanalytic with like, I, I really don't know. It's just something I noticed as far as like a, a recurring theme or motif in the, in the work. But um, there are certain artists whose work is so personal that like whatever boundaries you try to set up in terms of like you know uh biography is not destiny you don't you know the the facts of someone's life is not the is not always the core reason why they make any given artistic choice or anything like that like you still have to operate in that space a little bit to understand it and i that is definitely how i understand the role of sex in his movies um, yeah. i also think the role of sex in his movies is part of why i find his work so much more approachable than a lot of other slow cinema which is that uh, he just has a very earthy uh, approach to 
to his art, his films don't feel austere in that they are like very high-minded. Uh, I watched Nostalgia recently, and Nostalgia is a movie that I am just absolutely enraptured with and I adore. And then someone starts talking and I go, oh, fuck, it's the poetry again. <laughs> <laughs> like, and I just can't do it. And that's not like, oh, and Tarkovsky's worse off for it. It's just like, that's why Tarkovsky doesn't connect to me the same way. Yeah. Um, I think another thing that makes... Uh, uh, Chiming Liang's work very uh, earthy and, and approachable is the scatological element, mm. which is that you will see in his body of work, uh, Li Kang Sheng do uh, emit every single bodily fluid. <laughs> you will, uh, <laughs> the very first scene of Rebels of the Neon God, he cuts his hand on a window and starts bleeding. Um, but you're going to see him puke. You're going to see him piss. In this movie, he's afraid to go to the bathroom because he thinks his father is sort of haunting the hallway. And so he is constantly peeing in bottles and plastic bags and stuff all. And you just like, get to watch him for uh, hysterically like two straight minutes just fill a plastic bag with his piss. And like you will, you will watch a lot of people go to the bathroom in all of these movies. There's so much pissing and shitting in the world of Chiming Liang. Um, but there's puking in the hole. He pukes down the hole. There's, uh, you know, he has there's ejaculate in in Wayward Cloud. There's a, a very like graphic scene of him ejaculating. Um, there, there's just so much uh, that he is really obsessed with the body. Yeah. Um, and he is obsessed with all the body's functions and he is obsessed with tying these characters to the real world and their real surroundings. And part of that is like shooting in real locations and using these long shots that emphasize environments and all that. But then part of that is this like scatological element to these movies. I, I, I just I always took that as like his obsession with Li Kang Sheng was so absolute that he had to explore the body, had to explore the bodily fluids, had to explore all of it somewhere over the course of those decades of collaboration. But um, I, but I, I think totally like when you have a film that is so austere and so minimalistic, the way that so many of these films are, tone is everything. Because what you're doing with setting tone is you are creating the space for the for the people who are watching for their mind to wander, and you are set you are pointing the direction for where their mind is wandering and and the things they're feeling. Because um, you're not doing it uh, through very explicit, uh, manipulative kind of means. You're not doing it through the score comes in when they're supposed to be sad. Even even austere film, you know, slow-paced filmmakers from Taiwan like Hao Shei Shen, a lot of his films have like very sentimental music cues. Mm, um, yeah. Hao Shei Shen is not afraid to tell you how to feel, but Chiming Liang's not going to do that. He's going to set tone. And I think the way he uses the body... Part of that is definitely just an obsession. Like you see so much of Lee Kang Shang's body in this, and it, and it's like the way he shoots it. It's like you see you see him in all the best angles. You're like, yeah, that dude has a nice body. <laughs> <laughs> like again, he does not have Tony Leung matinee idol movie star like Hong Kong pop star looks. But like uh, when you see him in his tidy whities in Vive L'Amour, lying down in profile, you're gonna go, okay, yeah, this dude knows. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I, that, I think that uh, that is such like a big part of these movies. Um, I, I, another thing I want to talk about with uh, what time is it there is this idea of like this movie because so much of it it takes place in public. And this is not just what time is it there. This is so many of his films. Um, there, there's this sense of liminal spaces. There's this sense of uh, this uh, blurring of the lines between public and private spaces, the idea of rented spaces, the idea of people using spaces that 
they're not for for reasons they're not supposed to be used. Obviously, Goodbye Dragon in the fact that that you know second run movie theater becomes a cruising spot mm. is a good example of that. And that same second run movie theater is a cruising spot in this film. But like, there are so many scenes of people just sort of like sit stand hanging out in hallways or like sitting on railings. The 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 skywalk in this movie. Um, the there's there's just so many. Uh, emphasis on hallways and elevators and back rooms and stuff like that throughout Simon Liang's work that um, I think there is a political angle to his work. Um, I think he is someone who he doesn't deal with it in explicit ways. He doesn't, I, I feel the first time I saw Stray Dogs, I thought he was, I thought, you know, again, almost all of his movies, the first time I see them, I only get the surface level. And the first time I saw Stray Dogs, I was like, oh, this is Roger Ebert, Empathy Machine, Isn't It Hard to Be Homeless? Mm -hmm. um, and I think Stray Dogs is actually about something else, and we will get there. But like, generally speaking, I think Chiming Liang is someone who is very skeptical about uh, sort of modernization and about uh, gentrification and about the idea of like a city like a economic boom uh, benefiting the people who live in a city and the the idea of, generally speaking, everyone is always out to sell something. Every place you go is exists so you can buy it. Uh, every, every space where people find any kind of solace and peace, they did because they have paid money to be there. That is something that I just find uh, inexorably linked to the work of Chiming Liang is that um, anxiety about capital and about and global capital in this case. Like they, um, this is a movie that takes place both in France and Taiwan and uh, and is uh, examining the how much of a global uh, village do we actually live in? Like how you know how much is how much is globalization a good thing and how much can we really consider ourselves all part of the same world? At, that this is one of those things that I feel much stronger than I'm able to articulate. And but. I, you know, and I I dropped my only economics class, just like you know the character in Rebel, De you know <laughs> Rebels of the Neon God. Like I, yeah. know, I, I dropped the one <laughs> class that I probably should have taken. But like the, I, I would say that yeah, you can feel the economic anxiety in almost every one of these films, unless they're dealing with bodily anxiety. Like those are the only two kind of anxieties you really have. I mean, well, I mean, there's obviously the romantic. But I think that, yeah, I mean, you go back to the TV movies, you know, like the All the Corners of the World is about, like, the family of scalpers, you know, and the Boys is about, like, you know, uh, one teenager shaking down another younger uh, boy, you know, and Rebels of the Neon God, it's like, you know, if you, do, if you don't go to school, you can't make money. All um, through, I mean, Viva, Viva L'Amour, like, is dealing with, with money, and Wayward Cloud is dealing with, like, the economic realities of, of pornography, and uh, stray dogs, you know, and and uh, what time is it there? Like, you know, it's like selling selling products or you know advertising in the streets, like, you know, even in the conditions that are unpleasant. Uh, you know, it's just you. It's not like a cinema of privileged characters and like their kind of anxieties. Like, it's not like Antonioni. You know, it's not like anything that comes from that tradition or or the. The you know the comedy of the idle rich like it's not like screwball comedies of the '30s that way like it's like it's like these are characters that have to work for a living in almost every case, and it's like only in cases like days that you're not focusing on money but then you're just focusing on the body. Um, I mean, I guess there's a little bit of an economic reality there in that the, the hustler is still kind of out on the streets at the end of that story, and that's a whole other conversation. But like the um, 
yeah, economic reality is definitely something that is a factor in pretty much every one of the everyone that we've talked about, everyone I can think of. I mean, and even as a, uh, I, I, I think there's also like a sort of alternate parallel uh, reading of his body of work where. Uh, he is talking about the film industry <laughs> throughout all of these mm. movies. Obviously, there are, obviously Visage. It's it's very uh, pointed, but like Wayward Cloud, it's it's obvious too. But like when you are talking about uh, what time is it there? It's impossible to look at what time is it there and not see that as being inspired by uh, when you when you look at uh, Xiang Qi's story. It's impossible not to see that as being inspired by what Chiming Liang felt being in France. Uh, where you know he's being heralded as this genius and and meeting all these people who in his own home country are would never you know acknowledge his work the same way um, outside of maybe other filmmakers but like he 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 just doesn't have that and he is and the when you're talking about like economic anxiety uh, Chiming Liang is someone who is constantly hustling um, the buskers and the uh, you know the the uh, street salesmen and the uh, sort of uh, unregulated marketplaces of blankets with cl- stolen clothing that exist in Vive L'Amour, all these things, these are the real world that Chiming Liang lives in because one of the most fascinating things about him as an artist is that when he makes movies, that when they show in Taiwan, the way they show in Taiwan, he owns the copyright on them. He doesn't work with a distributor or anything. He four walls a movie theater. He rents out a movie theater. And he goes out on the street and he runs people down and sells tickets. (laughs) That is literally how he still makes movies. Days, uh, his most recent feature film, he was out on the street selling tickets. And at this point, he's sort of a local character. People know him by his bald head and and people know what they're in for. What time is it there? He shot the scene in this movie theater and he showed it in Taiwan in this movie theater. And it was a 1500 seat theater. And he sold 1,500 seats, and the owner of the theater said, it's been 20 years since we sold out a showing. What is your secret? Can you please, like, be the manager? Can you run this? And he goes, no, 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 you don't understand. I did this, like, I, it's not that I'm, uh, I had a great marketing campaign. I just hustled my ass off to get people to see my movie. Um, and then the guy who owned the theater went, well, we're going to shut down in two weeks if you don't you know, do something. So he goes, all right, I'll lease the theater from you. And Goodbye Dragon Inn apparently came a year after he said that, because uh, he'd forgotten that he had leased out this theater. And then someone at his company was like, hey, are you ever going to do anything with this theater that we've been paying rent on for 11 months? And he goes, oh, I guess I'll make a movie there. Um, But like the idea of the person who is like has to hustle to make a living and has to constantly find new angles to get money coming in, that's Chiming Liang's world. Uh, as, As he stepped away from theatrical film exhibition, uh, he eventually started using his brand to like uh, convince uh, you know museums to give him money or for film festivals to commission works from him. But also he uh, took over the coffee shop <laughs> that uh, Lu Yi Ching, <laughs> who plays uh, Xiao Kang's mother in all these movies, mm-hmm. uh, she quit working at the coffee shop and he was like, all right, I'll take it over. And because he is chiming Liang, the winner of the Golden Horse and the Golden Bear and all these things, uh, he was eventually able to get a museum to like buy his coffee from him and he supplies the coffee to that museum and he was able to like dovetail that into like okay well I'm gonna I've been painting chairs lately will you buy some paintings of my chairs and I'm gonna do some other works and it's like he did a lecture about the last 10 years of his career he goes I know that most of you know the first 10 years of my career this is what I've been up to the last most recent 10 years of my career and he tells these stories he doesn't talk about them as far as like 
this is why artistically I was drawn to this aesthetic or like I realized that the way to better purely express myself with this he talks about them like they're scams that he got away with like he has this little glint in his eye and when you talk when you read interviews with him they often reference that he has like this mischievous look about him like a like a trickster monk <laughs> um, <laughs> And, like, so he is that hustler. Like, that is his life. Yeah, I just always assume that most most filmmakers, most auteur directors that stay in the, in the game for decades have a little bit of that spirit. It Maybe not to the extent, extent that he does, but I, I, as far as that, that kind of hustler sensibility, because it is a competitive world to, to thrive in. And I, but I, and I think about, like, someone that makes proudly... Like he he's not he's not making concessions to any kind of commercial marketplace. So how do you survive, you know, uh, financially in doing doing films like this? Um, and I think you know a lot of people teach or they do commercial work or they do things you know uh, to uh, on the side to support the feature film career. Unless unless they are like a very small minority of directors that just make tons of money from directing films i don't think he is one of them but yeah i, I think that that um the uh, that embrace of the institutional world you know and and the gallery culture and things like that i mean that makes so much sense for what he does to not have to compromise and still earn a good living doing it so in 2002 uh chai followed up what time is it there with its uh short film sequel with uh the skywalk is gone which is uh, it sort of functions as a bridge uh I intended the pun, and I think Chai intends the pun as well, uh, between What Time Is It There and its sequel, Wayward Cloud. But before we can even get to talking about Wayward Cloud, uh, we have to talk about the next feature that he made, uh, Goodbye Dragon Inn. Goodbye Dragon Inn. Um, okay, so something instantly right off the bat, when you tell the story of Goodbye Dragon Inn, every single movie uh, website, every IMDb, Wikipedia, everything, whenever they give a synopsis of this movie, and this, for all I know, this could be from the artist statement from Chiming Liang himself when it, you know, from a catalog when it played at a film festival, but uh, they say this is the last night that the movie theater is open. There is nothing in the movie itself that says this is the last night the movie theater is open. It's just a vibe you get. <laughs> um so, like, the very fundamental premise of the movie is already a little ambiguous, but uh, it's not necessarily one I disagree with. It does feel like the last night a movie theater is open. Uh, it opens uh, with the movie theater in its heyday in the 60s, showing the uh, King Q movie, Dragon Inn. Uh, absolutely fantastic martial arts adventure film. Um, the, the theater is packed. It's full of people who are wrapped with attention, staring up at the screen. Two of the people in the theater we see is someone with a bald head and someone with long white hair. I've alternately seen this described as a child chiming Liang sitting with uh, his grandfather as his grandparents are the ones who sort of instilled his love of movies, taking him to the movies multiple times a day. Um, but also I've seen it written that there is a specific queer film critic from Taiwan uh, who is actually the man sitting next to him, uh, whose name I don't have in front of me at the moment. Mm. But at any rate, um, we flash forward to the present day where uh, it is now uh, a sort of decrepit movie theater. It's mostly abandoned. Uh, Japanese tourist wa wanders in off the street. There's no one working the box office, so he just kind of helps himself into the movie already in progress. The, we follow the rhythms and the vibes of the movie theater, the people who frequent it. Uh, in this case, it is not patrons of movies generally speaking it is uh gay cruisers who are wandering around the back rooms and and hallways and bathrooms of this giant movie palace uh looking to score um 
and the two people who work it, the projectionist and uh, the ticket woman, uh, this disabled ticket woman who has a brace on her leg and, and walks with a very distinct uh, limp, played by uh, Chen Chiang Chi. Um, Li Kang Sheng is the one who plays the projectionist, not featured until the last 30 minutes or so of the movie. Um, and you just sort of watch the movie theater. Um, you watch people watch the movie, but you yourself are watching the movie theater. This is a movie that the first time I saw it, I thought it was way too slow. There's not enough story. I thought parts of it were amusing and parts of it were beautiful, but ultimately it just didn't work. Um, the, uh, the music box theater in Chicago had a, when they reopened uh, in the pandemic, which I think happened early 2021, might've been late 2020. Um, I think it was actually, yeah, like fall of 2020 when they reopened, they had a program of movies about movie theaters um, or movies that are essential to be seen in movie theaters. And as part of that uh, program, I saw on the same day playtime by Jacques Tati for the first time on the big screen mm. And Goodbye Dragon Inn, which I had seen two or three times before, but never on the big screen. Um, that was an insane double feature. <laughs> I was going to say, was Jonathan Rosenbaum programming for them that day? <laughs> right. Um, I, uh, I saw, so I saw Playtime first, mm -hmm. which is a very sad movie that uh, that is v nonetheless very funny. And that was the first Jacques Tati movie I ever saw. And then I immediately saw Goodbye Dragon Inn and went, and it was like this piece of the Chiming Liang puzzle was missing. I go, oh, Jacques Tati, physical comedy, the the wide shot, like the, you know, the the crushing, uh, the crushing nature of modernity, the anti-human uh, setup of the modern city. Like it was, that was absolutely mind blowing. And Goodbye Dragon Inn instantly became like one of my all time favorite movies. Um, watching this in a movie theater, hearing the echoing sounds of the film Dragon Inn, which is a movie I also love and has a very distinct uh, score. So uh, you, even if you don't know the dialogue word for it and you can't necessarily place where in the story they are from glimpses of the images, uh, just hearing that music instantly, nostalgically, not necessarily nostalgically because I didn't watch it as a kid, but like I have fond memories of the film. So like I have a, a, a strong emotional warm fuzzies uh, just hearing that uh, soundtrack echoing off of the caverns of this movie palace. I am seeing it inside of a movie palace. The music box theater was built in the 30s, and the the echo, <laughs> the, the notorious echo of its main theater is um, perhaps charming, but maybe mostly uh, distracting when you're trying to figure out what people are saying in a screwball comedy or whatever if you're not sitting in the right seat. Mm. <laughs> um, but at any rate, uh, the act of watching a movie theater, and you're watching the movie theater as much as you're watching the people, um, it's it's very moving, and it's obviously like in the in the context of COVID, in the context of all these movie theaters are shutting down. Uh, like it it takes on a, a whole different dimension in the context of the film industry is collapsing, and uh, this is all falling apart. Like it's it's just so overwhelmingly moving, but also kind of difficult to talk about because there isn't much of a plot. I can really just like start naming shots I love. <laughs> like uh, I mean, obviously the most Jacques Tati. Uh, like out and out comedy sequence is the hilarious long take bathroom scene where this uh, the seemingly abandoned theater has like nine different men inside of this men's room, all none of whom are acknowledging each other, but all of whom are standing very close to each other. Some of whom are peeing for like five straight minutes. Um, again, just more like out and out surrealism from Chiming Liang. Uh, they're they're sort of making their moves, they're making their gestures, they're trying to figure out, you know, is is so and so gonna do it? And it's just over the course of the shot, more and more more people fill this bathroom. 
Uh, very hysterical. But like, I don't know. I, I just, I fucking adore Goodbye Dragon Inn for the same reason so many people adore Goodbye Dragon Inn. Uh, Bill, how do you feel about Goodbye Dragon Inn? Um, yeah, no, I, I love it. I think I remember when you, when you uh, didn't like it on Letterboxd. And I think I, that's one of the only films I've reviewed on Letterboxd was that one. I think I did, I did like it. I think I, at the time when I first saw it, I, I don't know if I would say this now, but I think I, I think I said something like, like it felt like an art gallery installation tribute to the uh, Red River scene in Last Picture Show. You know, like the, the scene where they go to the movie theater the last night in town and it just kind of like this, kind of nostalgic thing but it's not really doing that so much it's not like it's the long day closes or something like it's it's acknowledging you know the challenge of walking around the large space it's acknowledging the audience hasn't really come out for the show it's like it's sparsely attended and there's loud chewing behind you and like even your cruising efforts can be kind of thwarted if you're not like lucky that night like it's not um like it's it's seeing it's seeing humor and not not necessarily pathos, but it's like acknowledging a, a certain kind of imperfection to it all. But it is also still in love with movies and old movie palaces as well. Like, I, and so I think cinephiles are always gonna be the biggest audience for a film like this because it is kind of a you know not like not like the magic of movies or something. Like it's not doing that, but it is kind of like. Yeah, it is kind of like got a certain kind of like warm reverence for, you know, a kind of exhibition experience that is, you know, increasingly rare, even in the years since when did that come out? 2003? Like it only, you know, is further and further away from us that that kind of experience. Um, but yeah, no, I, I it's funny, I, I watching it again. Um, I sometimes hear like, you know, they, they, they make references to like, oh, the theater is haunted. And, you know, sometimes people talk about the woman, the, the woman like chewing loudly being a ghost. But I, I, I think when I watch it, I think Lee, <laughs> Lee, Lee Kang Sheng is, is, is really the ghost of the film because he doesn't show up for most of it. And it's like, it almost feels like a film about... Simon Lang waiting for him to show up so he can start making his movie. <laughs> um, because because at the time, um, Lee, Lee Kang Sheng was uh, directing his own film. And so they had to start shooting without him uh, being available for much of the shoot. So he only really kind of appears at the very end. But because he's, he's the muse, uh, yeah, it's just... It, it creates a, it, an, it's a film about his absence. <laughs> it's, it's much shorter than all the other films, even good, you know, even, uh, you know, Rebels of the Neon God, like everything is longer than this. Even the TV movies are longer than this. I, and so this, I honestly, because everyone's been in a movie theater, because it has the comedic side of it. Like if I was going to expose just a lay person, a non-cinephile to like a slow cinema uh, sort of film this would be like the most approachable one and part oh, of yeah. that is you can watch it and you can feel how long each shot is and you can feel the lack of camera movement but you're still like you're, you're only committing to like 89 minutes not even I, it's like yeah it's like is it even 80 minutes it's 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 short i mean for for a feature film um yeah no i agree with you i i think that it's i mean i, I think that yeah this was the one where 
I mean, I'd liked other films of his, but this is where it really kind of crystallized for me what he's, you know, what makes him great. Um, even more than uh, Rebels of the Neon God, which, you know, I liked, but I think, you know, I, I liked it even more on a rewatch. This one I, I appreciated right away, and I think to see it on a big screen would only kind of enhance it. But, I mean, I saw it on whatever DVD, I think, had come out for it. And now it actually has one of the nicer home video presentations through Second Run. But, like, uh, even in, like, a so-so DVD transfer, I, I could see how beautiful it was. Um uh, I was I was so moved uh, the last time I watched it, and it was on on my non anamorphic wellspring d- DVD. Like it's not even taking up all of my tiny TV. Yeah, uh, and it's still and it, you don't need you don't need. It's not uh, about bombast, and it's not about like tricking you into feeling the space necessarily by like oh yeah you have to see on the biggest screen possible so you're really immersed in it. Like it's it's not that kind of immersion. No, but I think it would be. I don't know. I, I I would like to. I'd like to experience. I've never seen any of his films in a theater. Um. So I I, I don't I don't know how that would. And, and I know that a few people have have made claims for it, like being. Yeah. I mean, well, I th- I feel like every film benefits from that. I mean, even the films that are like my dinner with Andre type films. You know, I think I think every film benefits from right. from that personally. Oh yeah. Um. Uh. But yeah. No. I think this one. It's it's funny to see this one taking the lead past some of the other films in those kind of polls. I'd always it always strikes me as interesting when a different film becomes that film. Like I mean, I I remember finding it strange when Mulholland Drive overtook Eraserhead and Blue Velvet on those kind of lists for Lynch. And I see you know it's going to be the same way if 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 a different film overtakes Do the Right Thing for Spike Lee or. You know, if some other film overtakes Raging Bull and Taxi Driver for Scorsese, like if Goodfellas becomes that film, uh, which is entirely possible, you know. So I don't know. This one, because it's dealing with cinema themes, I feel like it's like Vertigo in that way. And that like it's, you know, critics push this thing. I don't know if, if you put all these films in front of an audience that this would be the popular favorite with some of the other ones that are like have broader comedy or like, you know, like that are like a little bit um, more accessible. Like I think what time is it there is more accessible film for a lay person. But um, yeah, I agree with you that if, if you're trying to understand slow cinema, this is one of the best entryway points. And that is a legitimately like, I mean, this, this, this is where the style that he only seems to push further with things like Stray Dogs and Days, like this feels like it's most approachable iteration of that mature style to me. Well, well, something that, that's really striking about this movie that I, I don't think I really noticed before the most recent time I saw it is that it actually, despite the fact that it doesn't necessarily have like a traditional plot, um, it is like really strongly logically driven in that um, like the very first shot you see outside the theater one of the you know the color balance of everything is just like you see the red chairs in the mm-hmm. lobby and then every subsequent shot you see like way in the distance out of focus like a little stripe of red you know it's those chairs and therefore your brain builds out the mm-hmm. geography um there is this sense of because it is so slow paced and because it's holding on these shots so long, you are able to, as a viewer, even if you're not a particularly like super observant, I'm picking out every 
you know, little theme and detail and hidden message in every movie the first time I see it. Like, even if you you have the time to absorb all of the information and the way the information is laid out uh, shot by shot, moment by moment, because it is all tied into the running time of Dragon Inn, which is, it's a longer movie. The movie itself, you were right, it's not 89 minutes, it's 81 minutes. Um, this is a movie that's, like, I think 40 minutes shorter than uh, King Hugh's mm-hmm. film. Um, but like, you know that it starts at the start because you hear the fanfare of the studio credits and you hear the narration setting up the plot, uh, that, uh, Dragon Inn has that sort of Michael Curtiz thing where it just opens by telling you sort of the state of the world before you get to the genre (laughs) story. Um, and you know that it's going to end with the end of the movie. And so I think he is sort of, he is forced to tell a uh, very logical start to finish story um, in whatever form that story takes in a way that he, his other films are so much more enigmatic and they're so much more like, I don't know what's going to happen next. And I don't know why this happened. And like, even when you're in a scene, you go, I don't know why this happened next from the last scene. Uh, I don't know why this character decided to make this choice or move in this direction or all that. Like so many of his movies are so enigmatic in this way. And in this one, it really feels like as soon as you get the the feeling that there's like some sort of cruising or whatever, all the the Japanese tourists uh, make sense and you understand why he's doing what he's doing. And if the old men are the only people in the movie who are like very focused on the, the screen um, and you get a payoff to that, you find out why. Uh, even if you don't recognize the actors, uh, you will eventually... Uh, learn that 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 they were the two actors in the movie. Um, they're one of the most emotionally direct scenes in any of his work is the ticket woman uh, with the disability sneaking behind the screen and looking up and seeing the super heroine, uh, the actor from Dragon Inn, who was like one of the first female martial arts stars uh, of the '60s. Mm-hmm. You see her like doing her wild wuja like fight scenes and everything, and it's like. That right there is the Nicole Kidman AMC, everyone, the power of movies, like the most broadest possible, (laughs) like this is why we go to, like literally this is why we go to see Spider-Man. This is not, like he's not making a movie about why we go see 400 Blows. He's not making a movie about why we go to see Mouchette uh, or, uh, you know, or a Brisson film or something like challenging like that or a Hao Shen or whatever. He's making a movie about Dragon Inn. Um, and he's making a movie about we down here in our pathetic lives cannot reach the heights that these martial arts stars can. Um, but we feel, but we transport to the screen. There's a, a moment of cross cutting that's like rapid cutting. It's the only time it ever happens in his entire filmography, rapid cutting, um, where you get her face and then you get the screen and you get the face and the screen and you get this like sense of transference of like she's leaving her body and entering the screen and she is the one flying there fighting. Like it is, it is so. Uh, open uh, emotionally in a way that he doesn't allow his movies to be generally. And I'm talking as a person who is a cinephile and who didn't like it the first time, so I might be a little hypocritical in saying this is super <laughs> approachable and anyone can watch it and enjoy it. Um, again, like I have, I have, uh, I have chiming Liang brain poisoning. I can't speak it's for the fu- average it's person. That you, but- you, that you, I, I can see that reading of that moment where she's being moved by that. I was also just when I saw it thinking. Like her, maybe a sense of envy, you know, that like her body is like pr- 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 presents her all these challenges. And here's a woman who's, uh, you know, able to achieve these uh, Herculean kind of like fight kind of moves and 
just kind of like that contrast. Like I thought something maybe like slightly bittersweet was being expressed in that moment as well, beyond just the uh, the pleasures of cinema, but also just kind of like that 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 disconnect between bodies. That I mean, that's a that's a hundred percent there there too as well absolutely and it's and like the story between uh the ticket woman and the projectionist with neither character speaking a single word is like maybe also the one of the most powerful examples of romantic longing uh in chiming liang's career the long walk that she takes to the projection booth where he is not he has he has already switched the (laughs) reel and he's gone for a smoke break or whatever the hell he's doing he doesn't care yeah um there is such a long pause where she is trying to decide whether or not she's going to leave that bun. And and like once you've seen the movie a couple times and you and you know where everything goes and you know like you don't even know that there is a projectionist uh that's supposed to be there. Like you, you obviously you know how a movie theater works, but like um you don't know their relationship or or anything. He hasn't he doesn't appear on screen at all. There's no dialogue about like oh, she's in love with the projectionist. But like once you actually know the emotions of that uh, that are at play here, the subtext, the pause that she has is 100%. Don't put yourself out there. You're going to look like an idiot. He doesn't fucking want you. You're not worth loving. <laughs> like that little internal monologue that we all have in our head at some point where we like have to take that risk and put ourselves out there. And when she takes that bun back, starts walking away and then she does leave the bun for him and he does find it. Um, but when he rides off in his, on his motorcycle, she gets there like just five seconds too late to, for him to see her. Uh, but she gets there er- like soon enough to watch him drive away. Like that's the entire, like every single thing that happens between the two of them in this movie is she makes a laborious trip to the projection booth. He isn't there. She thinks about leaving him the bun. She thinks better of it. She walks back as she's packing up, presumably for good because the movie theater's closing. She leaves him the bun. He finds it. He dr- he takes it and drives away. She watches him drive away. They don't say anything. Like, oh, it is so. It just rips your heart. Like that has nothing to do with the power of. Like, I mean, it does have something to do with the power of cinema and that it's great fucking cinema. But <laughs> it's like it's not. It's. It's yeah. this uh, totally separate other thing going on. So the the bitterness and the the pain and the and the longing, the unfulfilled longing of all of his other films is certainly here too. But um, at the very least, there's a clarity to her watching herself on screen that there isn't to like uh, uh, Lee Kang Shang bowling with a melon <laughs> in uh, Vive L'Amour or something like that. Um, yeah. Well, I, 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 also, I just wanted to point out: was it is it is it Chen? Is it Chao Zheng? Uh, the uh, the actor from Rebels of the Neon God, uh, Azi, uh, he he's oh, the, yes, uh, yeah. he shows up as the uh, as like the handsome guy that the Japanese tourist tries hardest to make uh, a pass at in the theater, and I always thought that was kind of like I don't know if that's meant to be a callback to Rebels of the Neon God. I know he's in other films as well, but I mean, just like his his being the unattainable object of desire for. You know the, uh, I, you know I I don't know if that's the kind of character that you know, Chen uh, that uh, you know that that Li Kang Shen would have played you know in another iteration of it like that kind of like the well the, that's the, always that's always the Chen Chao Jung role is the like object of desire and obviously uh, 
Chiming Liang desires Li Kang Sheng, but he has Li Kang Sheng. He has a relationship with him. They're they're close friends. They're something more that is uh, somewhat undefinable. Like uh, Chen Xiaojung is like this unattainable thing where he is the handsome guy that the uh, father picks up in the river, and he is the man on the he's the Chinese man on the subway. In what time is it there that she sees and they just have this look. Uh, they they have this sort of unspoken bond, and then before that's you know right. it, he's on yeah, the subway yeah. and he drives away like that. He, that's him throughout. I forget he is in Visage, and I can't recall or no, not uh, I can't recall what his role in Visage is. I think he might just be working on the crew, and might this might break the <laughs> this might break the uh, unified theory of uh, Chen Chaojung in Charming Liang movies. But uh, I I that's funny. I had I saw that he was in Goodbye Dragon Inn, and I could not figure out who he was because I I just like. It's it's this problem when you're watching movies that don't have many close-ups and that don't have a lot of dialogue where you hear people's voices is sometimes it can be hard to tell who's who uh, when you go on IMDb later and you see a bunch of uh, names in a language you're not familiar with. Yeah, well, um, I'll just say with IMDb and and and, and this guy, you know, the, the, I mean, like the TV movies don't even bother to have accurate or even credits at all. I mean, it's it's that's true. It's funny how the, like even for a major director and these films are like out there that. He does not have the kind of fan base that like meticulously corrects IMDb to give everyone credit. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, errors and like uh, f- uh, files that don't kind of like map correctly on on that site. I mean, as far as like some people can have two or three different pages because they just haven't mapped it all correctly together, or they put the same credits. For two different people on the same, there's a lot of mistakes on there, unfortunately. But yeah, sure. I was surpri- I was surprised when I was looking up um, the early films like Boys this morning. This this that the, the the credits are not filled completed, you know, on there, and it's just wild because that's a major filmmaker and those films are available. So you'd think that that would be completed. I mean, they don't have to necessarily point out uncredited people, that, but they don't even put the you know the credits for who is in it, and they have the wrong credits for. Uh, the first film, because I remember you told me before I even watched it that that uh, Lee, they have what is it like Lee Kang Sheng as the little boy in it, and he's like he was a grown man when they made that movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, All the corners of the world does yeah. not, in fact, feature Lee Kang Sheng, despite what IMDb says. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, another thing about Goodbye Dragon Inn, I think this is this is certainly pointed with Goodbye Dragon Inn, but I think there are a couple films uh, by Chiming Liang that have sort of been reconsidered in the era of COVID. Um, I I think about, I, and part of it is because I started seriously exploring his work in during lockdown in 2020. Um, but, and like, and just the influence his movies have had on me and how I think about, like I live in an urban place and I, the, the way I think about these spaces and how I exist in them uh, it's just been fundamentally altered by, his work and the way I think about the the urban places and the cities I live in have been fundamentally altered by COVID in a way that are just sort of entwined and messy. But I I tend to think of Chiming Liang as like this COVID auteur, which is funny because the his last movie Days it came out in 2020, but it was shot in 2019. Mm-hmm. So he is not a COVID auteur in the way that many others were who were out there making movies. You know, the director of the ho- of Host uh, on Shutter is a much more of a COVID auteur <laughs> um, in a, in a literal sense. But when I think about the uh, sort of uh, primarily uh, primary concerns and anxieties and themes of his work. Uh, I just I just think of of things that have become so much more uh, vivid and large and uh, 
sort of visible. Uh, it's like these cracks in the social system that have always existed, but now like the cracks are too big that ev- now everyone sees that it's like, oh, it turns out like there, this 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 uh, society we've set up is not built for disaster, and it's not built to take <laughs> care of people, and it's and it, and it's in fact built to sort of crush people and to uh, ensure capital. And again, like Karl Marx uh, was a long time ago, so there's plenty of people who always knew this, but like my understandings of these things were radically altered by COVID and by uh, and I just think about all of these things. I mean, obviously, a big part of Goodbye Dragon Inn is this sadness, and it's. Uh, about the the death of this movie theater and about the death of these slow movies. Uh, not necessarily a slow movie, because Dragon is not a slow movie. That's I misspoke. But it's about the death of a of of the way cinema used to be. And Chiming Liang is not one of these like fetishists who's like shoots everything on thirty five millimeter, has to make things classical, won't take place in modern. Like you know, like Paul Thomas Anderson is never gonna have a shot of a smartphone in one of his fucking movies. <laughs> like he just, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, there's just like certain people who are just like, all right, from now on, I'm only making movies about the seventies because I can't make a fucking movie about twenty twenty three. Um, this is not Chiming Liang. He is making movies about modern life. He's done VR. Uh, installations uh, where he sort of gives VR tours of his home and shot with 360 cameras that way. Uh, on Stray Dogs, he embraced digital technology and what digital cameras uh, gave him the ability to like shoot super long takes and stuff like that. Like that is a that you know Stray Dogs is about as far as a Robert Zemeckis movie as you can get, but it's also a movie about someone taking technology and saying, "How do I tell a different kind of story with this?" Mm. Um, but um, uh, Goodbye Dragon Inn is nonetheless like very mournful of sort of this passing of time and and what and what goes and and what we lose in the process um he's also someone who is concerned with like sort of unexplainable physical illnesses the uh reoccurring neck pains that uh is sort of dramatized in the river and explored in the most recent feature days uh that's real uh lee kang shang's real thing that happened to him He, he you know a lot of the footage from days is not stage for the movie it is documentary footage of him actually receiving different styles of treatments trying to figure out what's going on with his neck chiming liang uh is constantly concerned with the breakdown of the body and the frailty of the body and the the just how um we are sort of susceptible to illness and people uh, in our lives dying of cancer and and things of this nature and like watching someone on their deathbed uh, pass away in front of your eyes. Um, he's concerned with sort of gentrification and homelessness and sort of the criminaliz- criminalization of homelessness is something that has been a very strong movement uh in recent years, uh, I just read a news article today. Turns out a lot of the people lobbying for uh, laws and stuff that criminalize homelessness and make it harder to be a homeless person, uh, those are private prisons who are looking for more uh, free labor. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, like, uh, so gross. <laughs> it's, 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 hor- it's fucking horrifying, but it is also just like, this is the world we live in. Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm very sad. I, I did not write down in my notes. I meant to the, the name of the man who was, who was just strangled to death, uh, in New York city, just for having, uh, mental illness issues on a subway and the sort of how that became a hotbed of like different takes on whether or not it's okay to kill human beings. If they make you uncomfortable, like, like, like we live in a world that, uh, is increasingly like all of these anxieties are only increasing, uh, yeah. for everybody. And chiming Liang, despite making movies, mostly, 
you know, his feature film work slows down dramatically after Goodbye Dragon Inn. Or I guess, uh, um, I guess it's more, uh, he, I guess it, it's a it's, slow slowdown. It's after Visage, really. Yeah, that- Visage, after, there's four years in between Visage and Stray Dogs, and then Stray Dogs is where there's... Uh, well, Stray Dogs was what everyone thought that was his last film for a long time. Um, yeah. I remember like, it, you know, I remember hearing that was going to be his last film when it came out. And then it felt like, you know, that was, I, I days was a surprise for, I think a lot of people. Um, but, uh, despite the fact that so many of these movies are made long before, I mean, whole is about, about, it's like literally about isolation. It's like literally about people, social distancing. It's about people who are terrified to be near each other because they think they might spread this strange virus. Um, but that, but the nature of that virus where people are cockroaches, that is, that is a metaphor that he utilizes to examine the way that people actually live in urban environments and how we already are sort of dehumanized and already sort of are treated like insects and sort of scrape out these, uh, existences for us ourselves in the squalor and filth and stuff like that. Like that's a movie where it's raining all the time and there's constant shots out of windows where you just see trash (laughs) falling from people. Like people are just tossing trash out their windows and in this apartment complex there's just constantly trash falling from the sky um there is like all of these things were always have always been human concerns or whatever but like i just feel like COVID has sharpened so many of them and uh i feel when i watch all of his movies i'm constantly thinking about COVID in a way that i just like i think if you want to understand the era we live in now uh you can do a lot worse than to watch the films of simon liang uh, and and to think about how he already viewed our world, that that is a personal read. That's not necessarily a broad no, motif, I, I, but, I would but that is a you. personal relationship I have with his work. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I I think I associate. Well, I, I mean, the one New York Film Festival that was totally online because of COVID was the year that Days was part of the lineup. So I, I did see it at home for its festival premiere, which is. You know, uh, not the ideal way to see it, um, but uh, but yeah, no, I was thinking about that watching you know, certainly the whole, but also uh, Goodbye Dragon Inn and and maybe the river also, but like but yeah, I was thinking about those, uh, you know, the, the the pandemic and 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 quarantining and such and social distancing and all of these things, you know, uh, not not so much while watching. Stray dogs, but I mean, I guess I was thinking just about like the tough environmental conditions. I mean, that certainly like feels is you know resonant now as and is when it was made in you know 2013. But uh, you know, because I think more about homelessness than I probably did in 2013, just because I hear about it more and more. Uh, but I think compared to the filmmakers that uh, you know disappear into period settings and Tarantino is another one that I think of is like, you know, it's a little frustrating to me that, you know, when directors refuse to, uh, to engage in, in the contemporary stories, but I, I mean, at the same time, I can't, you know, artists are going to do what they're going to do. I can't really fault them for it. And it's, you know, something like days is a very, very private kind of film to me. I mean, it feels like, uh, like it's 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 aware of the outside world but i mean i think it feels like i mean even compared to the earliest films it feels like it's with a total two-hander i don't even know those other characters credit to be on the two the two main people like it it feels like 
um, like when Bergman came back out of retirement to do uh, Saraband, like it's, you know, like it feels like here's just one more, but it's like something so intimate and so small. Um, I mean, a lot of the footage in Days did not, was not, I, Days is, a, is, an, is an anomaly within his work because Days was not conceived of as a feature. Days is a lot of footage that he was already shooting that for whatever reason, he eventually realized, oh, I think this could be a feature film. And he found a way to make it work retroactively. But like footage he was shooting of Lee Kang Shang getting his treatments or um, footage of uh, the other actor whose name I can't recall at the moment, like that, a lot of that was he shot not knowing what it was going to be used for in a way that I don't think is true of his other features. Uh, but uh, did you have anything else to say about Goodbye Dragon Inn? Uh, no, I think we covered it. All right. So it can be argued that, uh, and I and we in fact, uh, or at least I in fact did argue that Goodbye Dragon Inn with its nostalgia humor and, and warm gestures uh, between characters uh, in some ways acts as a re- as a respite from the bitter pain that defines so much of Simon Liang's work that came before it. Uh, but following Goodbye Dragon Inn, his work shifted in the opposite direction. Uh, if Goodbye Dragon Inn is the movie that uh, the cinephile world, at the very least, has sort of embraced as his greatest work, uh, Chiming Liang would not respond by running towards them opening his arms and trying to embrace them back, uh, he would get increasingly challenging, aggressive, and confrontational with an audience. Um, He followed it uh, in 2006 with The Wayward Cloud. The Wayward Cloud actually inspired walkouts and loud protests in its festival screenings with its combination of overblown camp musicals and an explicit and at times vicious view of the porn industry creating a total whiplash that left audiences stunned. The sequence that inspired the most ire was a lengthy and darkly comedic necrophilic sex scene that we talked about earlier. That scene ends with a long extended close-up of the female lead getting a penis forced in her mouth accompanied by loud extended gurgling choking noises. Uh, it's it's genuinely tough to watch. Um, and there was lots of uh, loud walkouts and debates uh, reported from different film festivals that screen Wayward Cloud. Um, it's funny. It's funny. Someone, I saw that one, not knowing. I, someone lent it to me. Not tell. I, I didn't even really make the connection that it was a Simon Lang film. They lent it to me with a bunch of, like Japanese pink films, like sexploitation films. Wow. So, so I, so I saw it like alongside, you know, things like the. Um, what are those films like the the, the Scorpion Lady Scorpion Prisoner like kind of mm. like like that kind of stuff like in like. Uh, and things that were like more of an erotica nature. So I saw it like surrounded by straight up sexploitation. And so I saw like, I, I'd forgotten that it was him, you know? And it, it's interesting to me that like, that was my first context for it was not that it was, you know, from the director of uh, what time is it there and rebels of neon God. It was like, Oh, it's an, it's a, it's a newer sex film from Asia. When I, when I was Googling <laughs> around, I, uh, I found that it did end up on a few like, listicles about like transgressive films fucked up films to watch like (laughs) it's very funny to think of a Chiming Liang movie ending up on the same thing as like irreversible or whatever but it was nonetheless it sometimes gets listed among those movies and it was one of his only hits at home like that this actually was a commercial success in the way that his other films typically uh, are not in Taiwan and, and it won two prizes at the Berlin International Film Festival. It won the Alfred Bauer Award for opening new perspectives on cinematic art, which <laughs> seems to me to be like just a divine euphemism. And, yeah. and a silver bear for outstanding artistic achievement. 
Uh, Chai's next feature, the 2006 film I Don't Want to Sleep Alone, would feature long extended extreme close-ups of Li Kang Shang playing a brain-dead man in a coma, forcing the audience to sit with the inhumanity and suffering of a body breaking down. Uh, in the midst of a story about immigration, homelessness, prejudice, gay jealousy, and environmental disaster, it won a special cinema for peace award at the Venice Film Festival. Um, I feel like uh, the last movie, I feel like such a big part of his filmography up to this point is uh, humor. Like that is, it's not, they're not comedies necessarily, but like he uses humor to balance the tone and he uses humor to offset the pain. And he uses, you know, it's, it's, it's just a big uh, tool for him um, is the way he employs humor. I really don't think that's true after Wayward Cloud. Um, uh, I don't, I mean, there's, there's like some amusing moments with Jean-Pierre Liot in Visage, but generally speaking, I don't think of any movie after Wayward Cloud as featuring much humor as like a way of regulating the story or the, the tone of a movie. I'm trying to remember if there's any humor with the kids at all in Stray Dogs or if it's all heavy, but, um, yeah, I think I mostly agree. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything, I mean, there's, there's humor. I, th- I'm trying to think if there's humor in any of the musical numbers, it, no, there's humor in Visage uh, with the Salome, I thought, right? I'm trying to think. The musical yeah. numbers there are a little more, uh, they, they they feel more like, uh, honestly, like they feel more like a Wong Kar Wai, like uh, luxury brand, like fashion commercial than they do like the goofy uh, <laughs> uh, sort of 60s uh, Cantonese pop uh, that that exists in the Wayward Cloud in the whole. Yeah. Um, I, I There's a little, like, but Visage... Again, I find that to be so challenging. So uh, it, I might not be detecting some of it just because, like, I, I don't understand the context for what's happening so often in that film. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I would say that um, I don't want to sleep alone was one that I have seen it, but it was actually the one of the hardest ones to to see because I rented the DVD and it came cracked, and then uh, I'd found torrents of it, but they didn't. The, the subtitles didn't match up. I did find it on Daily Motion, so I did watch, I guess, like a, a maybe like a rip of the DVD or something. It was kind of, I mean, it was watchable, but it was not like the greatest presentation, so it was a little bit more challenging. Yeah, I I will say, uh, generally speaking, his his films are kind of out of print. They're hard to see. We've, we've talked about uh, the difficulty of tracking them down in some ways. Uh, the River, Hole, and I Don't Want to Sleep Alone are all on archive.org. And I'll just, I'll just, so you don't need to figure it out yourself, go to the version of I Don't Want to Sleep Alone on archive.org and uh, delay the subtitles by 19 seconds and then it works fine. <laughs> so there's, <laughs> there's your cheat code. But um, all of those movies are, are worth seeing. But uh, uh, as part of the 2007 Venice Film Festival, uh, Chiming Liang set up an art installation built around showing Goodbye Dragon Inn in a space that was decorated with his artwork of places that inspired the film. This was the first, but it was far from his last step into the world of art installations and museums. Uh, Goodbye Dragon Inn became a bit of a calling card for him for that sort of fine art world. Uh, and that sort of is how he began this uh, later stage of his career, stepping away from theatrical exhibition, uh, ironically, with a film uh, 
uh, you know, with a, a film sort of about the death of theatrical exhibition. It was certainly the death of theatrical exhibition in his own career because it was what would lead to him, uh, for example, uh, in 2009, becoming the first filmmaker to have a film in the Louvre's permanent collection when they commissioned Visage, which is a complicated and discursive meta feature starring Lee Kang Sheng as a Taiwanese filmmaker making a film for the Louvre. Yeah, I, I am curious because it seems like you enjoy this film more than I do. I, I do. I like all of his movies, but like this is the one that I really struggle to get through every time. Um, what are what are your feelings on Visage real quick? Oh, um, I mean, I, I I've only seen it once and I, I it's it's not one of my favorites, but I I think I I think with like with this one and I don't want to sleep alone. I was just so on the train already as far as like they just felt like it's more it's more variations on these ideas and here's here's certain faces I recognize again and here's uh so visage I think I think I expected to be more of a departure than it was because I think beyond the fact that it's like got this French setting and some French actors it feels like very much of a piece to me. Uh, with the other films like it doesn't feel like a great uh like it's not like my blueberry nights or something where it's like no that's really, true like you know like really kind of rethink like how does this fit in like it feels like oh it's still it's still him doing what he does i i, I think i don't know it, it felt like um it was telling me something about what it's like to be him as a filmmaker in a way that like maybe some of the other films like feel like more like indirectly dealing with like his emotions and desires and concerns like this feels like acknowledging who he is uh in a way that i was kind of intrigued by but yeah i mean i i don't know if i have like prepared notes or like a great sure defense for it i just thought um you know that it it was an attractive looking film i thought it had like like the moment where like he's He's having the hookup in the woods and like gets the news that his mother died. Felt like such a weird mix of tones that I thought was like an interesting scene. How it all adds up, I think I was just taking it as another installment of a larger project sure. by that point. Sure. Um, Visage also the most difficult to see. Um, story about uh, Visage on DVD that might uh, tell a little something uh, about the sort of mindset of Chiming Liang in terms of home video and perhaps why so many of his films struggle to get uh, proper releases. Um, he tells a story about Ever- uh, Wayward Cloud. Uh, he This is a story he told uh, at this lecture that I attended. He, t- he said that they made 2,000 DVDs of Wayward Cloud for Taiwan and it sold 50. <laughs> and the rest of them ended up in the bargain bin. And whenever he was in a uh, a video store or something and he saw them selling for Wayward Cloud for cheap, he felt it was demeaning uh, and he felt dejected. So he would make sure to buy them so no one else could buy his movies at that price. Um, so when it came time for Visage, uh, which he knew was not more accessible than Wayward Cloud, uh, he decided what he was going to do was instead of releasing 2,000 DVDs and hoping to sell them all at this certain price point, he was going to do 10 DVDs and he was going to create super limited edition special boxes out of wooden crates and he was going to paint them with scenes from the movie um, and he was going to sell each of them for a million dollars. 
and and he said <laughs> and he sold two of them i don't know if there's a i don't know if he saw i i don't know if the translation it, this is a lecture that was done through a translator i don't know if this is a million taiwanese dollars i don't know if they're if a million dollars is a figurative thing or if he literally sold these boxes for one million dollars but he sold two of the ten and made way more money that way than he did uh releasing wayward cloud <laughs> the way he did so um moma has one of these wooden crates and there's some uh taiwanese museum that also has one uh that story is for me like uh, obviously it, none of his movies are going to be like oh finally dawn of the dead's in 4k like none of his movies are going to be like massive unit movers but like there is a demand for these movies that is not met by uh like re region one releases at the very least i think they're a little bit easier to find in in france but uh and i think that uh he might be a roadblock himself to that <laughs> being the case uh because he he doesn't seem to take too kindly to the video uh, market well, he's he appears on the the all region Blu-ray for Goodbye Dragon Inn from Second Run, but there's a really nice edition of Rebels of the Neon God. He's not involved in the special features for that. Um, there's a bare bones Blu-ray for uh, Viva la Amor, I think, that came out not too long ago, um, and there's a nice two disc special edition for days i think that's and there's and there's a nice special edition for stray dogs so those for for us listeners these are these are the the best options for home video for him um uh but yeah the, there's a, there's quite a lot that came out through like wellspring kind of releases that are out of print and i again i don't know how, like if the cost to restore them to, you know, high def transfers that people would expect. Like, I don't know if there's a financial barrier, but, it, but I, I feel like, you know, when I talk about like the, the filmmakers that were kind of hot in the film comment world, when I first heard about Simon Liang, um, a lot of them are not that well represented on, uh, home video i mean i'm you know i mean even people like bellatar are just starting to show up gradually but that's like, true i think like there's major films from a pitchapong that are not available not uh i mean asias who's a pretty you know mainstream by the standards of these guys i mean there's a lot of his that are not available um you know the dardens you know like so yeah hosho shen um so it's you know unknown pleasures like there's a lot of there's a lot of like key films from that period of art house cinema that they're not old enough to be treated with the same respect as Bergman and Fellini <laughs> and they're not new enough to be treated with the same respect as uh Hong Sang Soo or whoever <laughs> you know he's like currently making the rounds right. and um so it's yeah it's just like that weird kind of transition format to format and these are the kind of films that are not safe bets for the home video labels that are working with they're they're they're, they're working with either safe bets or they're charging a lot or both <laughs> you know so i i don't know i mean i'd love i'd love to see all these films that we're talking about i mean even the ones that i'm less you know uh passionate about like something like visage i would love to you know see something that really puts it in context 
with a you know and treats the visual uh, beauty of it like you know respectfully on home video. I mean, certainly, I I think that would make a big difference with my feelings about. I mean, not that I, I, I enjoy films like The Hole and The River, but I feel like I would enjoy them even more if they looked like they're supposed to look. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, The Hole, so, I, I've not, I think The River looks okay. I think there is some release of The River that is, there is. A pretty good. The Hole is one that I've only ever seen in a pretty bad DVD transfer that, uh, it's yeah. unfortunate because that that movie is even even more than some of these other movies. That movie is so much about the vibe and about the environments and about the textures and the tactile nature of them. Yeah, I just I just think that like I mean it's a very different kind of filmmaker. But I remember when I was growing up with the films of Dario Argento and Dario Argento's films always were severely compromised on VHS, which is how we you know all could see them you know pan and scan and cut and all of that and it made such a big difference in my appreciation for them to see them widescreen uncut remastered and i feel like it's not quite as extreme with with Simon lang but i feel like um like his films are not being compromised in terms of framing or content but it's like yeah these are beautiful films that are like you know set, like having to like transcend kind of really mediocre or worse kind of presentations on home video and and the fact that he's not as keen on that earlier you know phase of his career is not gonna i mean but 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 the but people that know i mean he's a name brand auteur i mean i'm sure some labels would kill to have any of these films in their catalog so it's just i don't know sometimes it's just the rights holders want x number of dollars that it's unfeasible and sometimes it's just yeah, the the cost of, of bringing it up to a professional standard is is uh, is the, is the prohibitive factor. So, I don't know. I mean, Criterion has never put out one of his films, but I mean, obviously they're aware of him. I mean, so maybe him, th- them, or because uh, it's not like there's that many labels that specialize in that. I mean, film movement. You know, there's a couple that could do him justice that would want to. But yeah, I feel like these are like risky projects and probably not cheap. Right. I, it is It is one of those things where it's like, oh, there could just be a box set of all these. Even if just the movies through Goodbye Dragon Inn, because they're just so essential as viewed as a part. You know, like it's just like all these like little just echoes that I'm just like, oh, if that could all be presented together. It'd be perfect. Um, but uh, even outside of his features, he has a different uh, collection of shorts that are uh, essential to his uh, um, sort of brand and, and sort of uh, what he is known for as an auteur. Um, that began in 2011, I want to say, because they were or they were at least they were inspired by a 2011 stage play that was put on by Chiming Liang and Li Kang Shang, where Li Kang Shang demonstrated his ability to walk at extremely slow speeds, uh, which is a form of Zen walking meditation called Kinhin, which I think I'm mispronouncing. So sorry about that. Uh, he crossed from stage left to stage right over the course of half an hour, and that was the theatrical production. Uh, he would try to cross the stage as slow as possible, um, and sometimes it would take up to you know over 30 minutes to do. Um, this formed the Walker series. To date, there are nine Walker shorts, and they all feature a similar structure. Uh, Li Kang Shang, dressed in the orange robes of a Buddhist monk, walking at miraculously slow speeds in public spaces as the modern world uh, sort of exists around him. Um, in these films, it's not unusual for a single step to take longer than a minute. Uh, shorts in this series include No Form, Sleepwalk, Walker, No No Sleep, and Journey to the West. 
They transplant the action in different countries. There are different settings, but the core premise, the pace, and the static camera work remains unchanged. Um, uh, Bill, had you have you seen any of these Walker films? I have seen Journey to the West, and I thought that was really, I thought that was really compelling. I got it. I mean, I, I get what he was doing, and I found it totally hypnotizing. And um, just because it's gonna kill me if I don't mention it. Um, since I just wanted to shout out the labels, Grasshopper is the label that put out Days, and um, the Cinema Guild put out Stray Dogs. And Stray Dogs, the Blu-ray includes Journey to the West as one of the bonus features. So uh, that's definitely like an essential home yeah. video package just for the one-two punch. Um, and Days also has multiple films, not just uh, Days. It also has Afternoon and what I think a short film. So, um, but yeah, back to back, Journey to the West. Uh, yeah, is the only Walker film I've seen. I think um, I was curious to see more, but I know that this is the most famous one. I'm trying to think what it reminded me of. I I, I think I, the the one I, th- I compared it to in my head. And I don't know if it's just because of the length was the uh, the Skywalk is gone. Um, that's the thing I thought of watching it. And I don't know if it's just because of the location and the, and the, the city in the daytime and just the fact that it wasn't like obligated to tell a story, uh, because of the, the short film format. Walker series is something I resisted for a while until obviously when I was preparing for this podcast, I said, all right, fine. I'm going to, I'm trying to watch as much as I can. I'll watch the Walker series as well, but I know I'm not going to like it. Walker series is one of those things where I hear the premise of it and I got the idea. You don't, the sit of sit, the act of sitting and watching these things is irrelevant because I understand that he's doing a thing where you're walking very slowly and the hustle and bustle of the modern world. Da, 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 da. Like, I was like, that's already something I get from his feature films. I don't need to watch these Walker movies. They're probably just going to be endurance tests and be boring as hell. Um, walking, watching someone walk slowly uh, is not necessarily like the log line that makes audiences or executives drool. You know, <laughs> like it's not, it's not, it doesn't get butts in seats. It, 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 it sounds like a parody of slow cinema. It does. It sounds, it sounds like the kind of thing where if I describe that I, in fact, this, this it did happen to me. I said. Oh, I'm preparing, you know, I'm talking to my coworker. I'm like, oh, I'm preparing for this podcast on this Taiwanese director. And I was describing the kind of works he makes. And I was like, oh, I saw this really great film the other day. It's called No, No Sleep. And I described it. And it just sounds like every, like, it just sounds like this. Yeah, it sounds like a joke. The thing that I did not know about the Walker series is that I complained that the humor had mostly disappeared uh, from his work post Wayward Cloud. That is actually not true because the Walker series is funny. Um, yeah. there, especially when you look at Journey to the West, there is a game that it is playing, which is like, where's Waldo? It's where's Lee Kang Shang? It is <laughs> every shot starts and you know what it's going to contain because that is the central premise of this movie. And it's an hour long but you uh, you don't – he's not always like front and center in the frame. You don't always know where he is. And because he's moving so slowly, your realization of where he is, it's not an instant like you don't see him and then you see him because he walks on screen. It is like there's a scene – uh, where you just see a man in his kitchen like preparing uh, tea or something and you're like oh okay I guess I guess there's a little digressive uh, alternate story about this man making himself a drink and then like slowly you realize in the background of him in the window is Lee Kang Shed because you just see the orange because he's wearing this orange robes and you're like oh there he is so like yeah. there's that the thing it made me think of is Tom Green of all people 
uh, had an MTV special where he went to Japan and did a bunch of Tom Green pranks in Japan. And one of the things he did uh, was he was like, oh, I'm so jet lagged. I'm so sleepy. And he sat on the stairs to the Japanese subway and Japan being a very crowded, busy place where people are trying to get to work. and uh, But they're also like not super aggressive, confrontational, uh, generally speaking. Like they're all trying to very politely move around him as he is just totally disrupting them. There is a prank show element to the fact that there is only one person in this movie. Actually, that's not true of Journey to the West because of... Um, what what's his name? Den- from? Dennis Levant, because because de- Dennis Levant uh, becomes the sort of acolyte who also also an extremely physical actor uh, yeah. starts to follow him. Um, but for the most part, everyone you see in this movie is just a person living their lives in the city. And Lee Kang Sheng is the subject, and he's the only one who knows he's in a movie. Um, or he's you know, sometimes people stop and like take out their phones and take a picture of him. <laughs> <laughs> like like there's just so many like little weird things. But he it is like almost a prank show thing where he is making a spectacle of himself, and the way that he interferes with other people's lives is both a statement about yes uh, about the pace of modern life and the sort of way that you have crowds and crowds of human beings and none of them consider each other as human beings. They are all just this mass of people coming. You know, it's like, whatever, I've seen Koyana Scotsy, the people got in all down off the train of Grand Central Station, <laughs> they go down the stairs, whatever. Um, mm. Like there's that, but it also, the way it does it is not like super self-serious the way you might think. The way it does it is very funny. The I think Walker is the first of these shorts. If it's not the first, it's one of the first. Walker, uh, features Lee Kang Sheng with one of the sort of ubiquitous convenience store plastic bags uh, around his hand. So mm-hmm. as he's walking, he also just has a little plastic bag dangling from his hand. The very end of the movie, he finally gets somewhere and he like hits a wall and he just stops. And then it cuts to a close-up, which you basically never see in these movies. You don't see a close-up. They're all about the environment. So there are all these big, long shots where he is a tiny figure in the frame. Uh, it cuts to a close-up and you see his hand slowly go up to the bottom of the frame and he has like a sweet bun that he brings to his mouth and he eats it. And it's like <laughs> such a funny, uh, it's such a funny punchline to a movie like Walker. Um, I've seen uh, three of these movies. I've seen No, No Sleep. I've seen Walker and I've seen Journey to the West. And they have a sense of humor to them that is surprising um, that you might not expect. Uh, if you Google around, you can find Walker on Vimeo. Someone's just sort of illegally uploaded Walker. Um, and Journey to the West is on YouTube in a in a different form. If you're curious about it, but you don't actually want to watch an hour of someone walking slowly, someone has taken Journey to the West and sped it up six times, which is not the movie that <laughs> Chiming Liang made. I'm not saying like this is a valid way to experience Journey to the West, but it is an interesting demonstration of the effect because you see these crowds of people moving in fast motion like an undercrank camera, and you see uh, Li Kang Sheng walking still quite slowly. Um... <laughs> Uh, like upstairs and stuff, and it and it has the the feeling of like macro footage of ants or something. Like it's it's a it's a if you are curious but don't want to commit to watching a full short of the Walker series, uh, search for Journey to the West, Simon Liang on YouTube, and you can find that. I thought I found that interesting as well. Um, uh, long before the Walker series 
the Chiming Liang had been associated with the nebulous tag of slow cinema, but uh, this is the era, this is sort of the section of his career where he's pushing it further and further, which I think is maybe a good way to bring us into the final film we're going to be talking about today, the 2013 feature film Stray Dogs. Um, Stray Dogs is about a family of homeless people living in an abandoned building. The father, uh, played by Lee Kang Sheng, uh, works as a human billboard for luxury apartments. Um, and we watch and observe their life in a obser- observational mode that is honestly, uh, despite the fact that inside of the uh, c- cinema of uh, whatever, that little diagram that Paul Schrader made, I don't find Lee, uh, Chiming Liang's works to be very surveillance-oriented. Uh, this is the movie that is the most observational at times. You are literally sitting and watching someone do their job. Um, like I, I've said multiple times, first time I see a Chiming Liang movie, I get the most surface level. Um, I am not a Roger Ebert empathy machine. Like I don't think that's how cinema actually works. And I don't think that that is something that cinema does that's unique to other art forms. Like I, there's perha- that, that quote is perhaps tied to a larger essay that I would agree with and find more well thought, but I find the thing that people actually quote, which is cinema is an empathy machine. I, I often roll my eyes. <laughs> um, um, but the first time I watched this, uh, my main experience was sitting in a movie theater and watching a shot that at the time, having not been as accustomed to Chiming Liang and having never seen this film in particular, I thought this shot went on for nine minutes. It goes on for three minutes. It's not that long <laughs> in the in the realm of even inside of this film. The the shots of uh, Li Kang Sheng as the human billboard are not exceptionally long, but I felt I was going to be there forever. And, and part of that is because you don't have any context. You don't have a story. You don't have any dialogue up to that point. You don't know who this person is. You don't know what you're supposed to be gaining from the scene. You don't know what the next shot is going to be. Um, this is the movie that feels the most like art installation, which is mm. you could walk into a museum and see any moment from this, and you could sit down on a bench in this art museum and watch 15 minutes of this movie at any point, and you will have a full experience uh, in a way that, that just isn't true of what time is it there or, or the river or something like that. Like these uh, shots, almost every scene plays out in a single master shot. These shots have with them their own internal meaning and and context and emotional content. Um, And they don't feel particularly strongly like uh, built around cause and effect. It is a, it's a difficult movie. I, I I mentioned earlier, I've seen this movie five times. The three of those times I have fallen asleep at one point or another. Um, I have a tendency to put this movie on when I'm very tired because I just, I, it is a movie that I I can't meditate. Like, I have intrusive thoughts. And, like, when I try to clear my mind, it just fills up with heinous shit. And actually, that's something <laughs> that's something true of the Walker series as well. The closest I get to meditation is watching these movies. For example, when I walk through the streets of Chicago, I always, always, always need to be listening to either music or a podcast or something. I can't listen to the sounds of the city around me because what happens is my brain isn't occupied and then it fills up with heinous shit because it's just intrusive thoughts. That's just, that's just how my brain is built. That's the chemicals. That's, that's the hand I was dealt, whatever. Um, but when I watch the Walker series, I can like sort of hyper-focus on the sounds of the city, uh, and sort of exist in this space as, as he slowly travels through Hong Kong or through, uh, Marseille or whatever. Um, stray dogs is a similar thing where I can, I can, it allows me to sort of experience urban environments in a way I can't normally. It's not until this most recent viewing that I actually had like a take 
<laughs> on like this is what this movie is about uh or like uh, i mostly just thought it was some of it was compelling and some of it wasn't but all of it was unlike anything i had ever seen um but i i'm, I'm curious bill how uh how stray dogs uh hit you i think it's one of his best films i feel like it to me, I, I'm glad I saw it when I did. I think when it came out, I remember Travis Crawford, my friend, uh, was a big fan of, of all of Simon Lang's films. And, and this one was one of his favorites of the year when it came out. And I remember thinking that this was going to be a grueling film to sit through, um, just based on what I knew its approach to be. So I just waited to like until I was going to be able to take it on its own terms. And when I saw it, I really found it, it, it felt like, it felt like the end of the line in a good way. It felt like this is as extreme as we're going to take the style without it breaking the film. Like it felt like a good last film at the time that I saw it. And I think that I, I you know, superficially, I think, I think of things like shoplifters or parasite that like deal with like families that are on the margins or, you know, like, and like trying to persevere. Um, but like, you know, like then kicking off like a series of like a, a, some kind of story. This doesn't really break into the story that I think I expect it to do because of those kind of films. Like it, I, I still don't quite understand certain things like why he has uh, all three of his most um, prominent like actresses all playing the same character, depending on the scene. It's, at least that's what I've read. I don't know if that's, if, if that's true or if that's, yeah, I, I don't know that they like intercut it like from, it's not like uh, that obscure object of desire where like like a woman walks into the room and then like walks out and then comes in as a different person. It's not like that. I, I am fairly confident is it is in fact the same character. I that was one of the key things is like I didn't even think this was a narrative film until like maybe the last two times I saw it. Uh, I I thought it purely existed in the realm of the avant-garde and the dream at the end and it's only like recently I was able to watch it and realize that this is a consistent character who works at the supermarket. Yeah. Um I thought I thought it was I thought it had like such uh haunting scenes and I think that you know I mean it, it, there there are scenes that, like I feel like when he's eating like chicken and it goes for like several minutes of screen time I feel like okay you can't keep going further like in this direction because it's well I guess you can but I mean it, it, it's 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 really changing the form to something that I don't even know like it, it it does feel like closer to gallery installation kind of work at this point it doesn't feel like like he's interested in like making a film um the way we think of them um but that's not uninteresting like I mean I think that I don't know. Like, in some ways, I thought of Goodbye Dragon Inn. I mean, what what I'm, but instead of watching someone watch a movie, I'm watching I'm watching someone look at a mural or or like something like you know uh, looking at the sea. Like I'm I'm still watching someone watch something, and I thought of yeah. I mean, I like I said earlier, like I thought of like just like the the grueling job, the 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 economic anxiety theme. Uh, and also the sexual dysfunction theme, um, and and in a in a way also was like, is it the first film with like little kids since the beginning? 
I'm just trying to think. Like, I, I, I don't think I had seen the TV movies before. And so, like, yeah, think, I think the TV movies are the last time he worked with little kids. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. I mean, I don't know if I was like thinking so much about the jump from celluloid to digital. Although, I mean, if you pointed out, I definitely I'm aware of it. But um, yeah, no, it's not a film that I would probably rewatch a whole lot. It's not a film that I would start off a newbie to Simon Lang's films with. No. Um, but I think that I think it's one of his best films. I think it's one of his great films. But it is it is kind of like yeah. I mean, it's like hard to be a god or something. Like it's like it's 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 kind of a masterpiece, but it's it's not an easy watch and it's not an easy film to recommend uh, to, to newbie. And I, I also think it, it makes interesting companion to something like journey to the West, because it is about characters like in kind of like a, like a slow private experience in a bustling public setting. Like, I, I think that that they, they make interesting kind of companions that way. And I don't know that they were even conceived along the same lines. I mean, they, they're, they're not too far apart in terms of when they were made, but I don't know that I, I, I don't know that they, they were made to consciously resonate with one another. Um, so I think, uh, when you talk about stray dogs, this is the, this is the movie that is like the audaciously, slow cinema the the shot lengths the the pacing of his earlier work it certainly is slower than the average it's you know what time is it there is going to be there's many other films that uh from asia at that time that are sort of tackling that loneliness and isolation and 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 the the feeling of being displaced and all that but like you're not going to see many of those movies that have that uh tempo and pace and stuff like that but like stray dogs is the movie that ends um, with the 17 minute <laughs> uninterrupted shot of a close up of someone's face staring at a mural, uh, followed by like a four minute shot of the reverse shot of them of that mural. Um, like this is this is where he starts pushing it much further to any any concept of like I'm trying to be approachable is totally shattered. And I'm I, I'm curious about slow cinema. In general, we sort of been dancing around it. We talked about like Bellatar or whatever. Something I, I, I'm, I find, uh, I, I feel ambivalence about is that I don't know if there is such thing as slow cinema movement. Like I don't know if any of these filmmakers are like talking to each other. I don't think I don't think oh, Chiming I, Liang I don't think is, so at all. is thinking about uh, you know uh, Werkmeister harmonies when he's making you know Stray Dogs. I don't I don't think. Bellatar is is thinking about chiming Liang when he makes Turin horse like um it's it's hard for me to like these things get lumped together yeah I think I, I think yeah a pitchapong uh is is a fan of Simon Liang like the, 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 the I mean there are there are some uh acknowledgement of one another but yeah no I totally agree that I think I don't, I don't really think of them as having that much in common other than a slow pace. Uh, or so yeah so many of those movies are are of uh, that are sort of lumped in slow cinema that's the only thing that they have in common. I and I think I think Stray Dogs is is a movie that could be like obviously anyone who's going to be standing out getting blasted with wind and rain uh holding up signs for luxury apartments when they're homeless like that's that is a heart-wrenching emotional uh state for anyone but like when you see 
the weathered face, uh, when you see that close up, when you hear him start singing, like it, 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 it means so much more uh, when you feel the full weight of a person instinctually as a viewer of Chiming Liang's work in a way that, again, like the idea of if, if homeless people are, are people who are dehumanized and are looked over and people just walk past them and walk on by and like they don't consider their lives like one way to tell the story of the uh an un- unhoused is home the, the the truth is homeless person is now like a, such a common phrase that it's it's that it it used to be descriptive and now it's dehumanizing to even just say like unhoused person is is a more appropriate phrase that's what i should be saying um like one way to tell the story of the unhoused person is to like build a narrative about like, oh, you know, their fall from great, you know, they used to be this and they used to have all this and then they just had a few bad breaks and any one of us could be in their position and don't we feel bad that they don't belong there and maybe every unhoused person we see doesn't belong there. Da, da. But like another way to do it is just to <laughs> like cast Lee Kang Shang and have an investment through all these other movies. Um and I, I think like I if if all cinema is subjective, if all movies don't exist on the screen, they exist on your brain, they exist in some midpoint in between your eyeballs and the screen and like the way your brain processes it. And like that's the reason editing works is because you are putting two disparate images together and you're finding the meaning like slow cinema is seeding more ground to your imagination and to, and it's expecting and through its lack of dialogue and through its long takes and through its minimalist narratives and stuff, it is expect, it is putting more of the uh, responsibility on you to find the emotional through line. And I think that the, the fact that it is a slow film that has Lee Kang Shang and it has Liu Yi Ching and Yang Kui Mei and Chen Xiang Chi. Uh, like, I think all of these things work in a way that if another filmmaker, if this was the debut feature of someone, uh, I don't think it would ha- be as powerful. Oh, I totally agree. But yeah. because, but because he's so self-knowingly, you know, he utilizes that. This is part of his tactic is to constantly like cast these people and to like form these relationships. And like, even this, so it's so the main problem with stray dogs and the reason why I'm like I'm like struggling to find words is that I think it's about Buddhism and I don't know Buddhism. <laughs> um, and like I I it's like I'm really hesitant to even step into this arena because like it turns out I tried. It turns out you can't become an expert in Buddhist philosophy with 3 weeks of googling essays. Um, so like all of the knowledge that I tenuously kind of sort of grasp from random Google uh uh, results uh, is, has already rapidly left my brain because I don't have a strong understanding of it. Um, but I think Stray Dogs is about how the world is suffering and how that the things that are real is our physical bodies and how they suffer and how they struggle and how we are born to die and the the pain we feel and the the realities of your daily needs of you need to eat, you need to shit, you need to sleep. Uh, you have sexual desires, like the, all of these things uh, that need to constantly be attended to and maintained. Um, and then there's a f- false reality that has been built up around it 
that the average person living in a city lives in and exists in and has faith in and believes in. And that is the reality of the massive grocery store supermarket that is just like this bizarre dreamscape of colors and brands and salespeople. And like every shot inside of a grocery store in this movie nearly is like all shot through windows or reflections or glass or obscured in some way. And it is this like fictional reality, the capitalist reality that we all live in um, of like, well, you grow up and you go to school and you get a job and this and like, this is all, and this is all what it means to be a human. None of that is what it means to be a human. All of that is this like dream and the actual, what it means to be human is suffering. And the final shot at the end, they're looking at this mural of a beach. That is our connection to the world around us is we see things through a glass darkly, which is not Buddhism. That's, that's the Bible, but, um, <laughs> but like, Bergman. yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, mm. that, uh, and it's, and that is as close as we can get is, you know, or Plato's cave, uh, for example, you want to go to a different philosophy. Um, and so much of this movie is about, the states that different characters are in where they're able to deny uh, reality um, and where they're not able to deny reality. And someone who cannot deny reality, who cannot deny that life is suffering, that life is a constant uh, ticking time bomb of needs. Time bomb is a bad metaphor, but it's like it's constantly draining needs that you need to fulfill over and over and over again. And, and there's intense pressure to do it because you need uh, money to do so. Like the the uh, the unhoused person is is distinctly aware of that, and as soon as he ends up in this like dr this nightmarish dream setting where he has this like domestic situation inside this burned out house, uh, like the very first shot of this movie is something out of J Hor, uh, where the uh, woman and because you don't see her face, I can't say exactly which uh, actress it is, is like brushing her hair for like five minutes and it's in front of her face and the walls look like a corrugated metal or something. You don't realize until later that it's all burn marks and there's like children sleeping on a mattress and it, and it just looks like a nightmare scene. Um, and it's, and it's the dream. And so this is, this is me rambling cause I don't have like uh, a way to uh, contextualize all of this, but I do, I did want to say like, I think this is, a movie about the division between reality and the dream that modern life has sort of put over our eyes. This is, this is, this is uh, Chiving Liang's The Matrix. Um, no, <laughs> in some ways it is, but also hmm. I wanted to use that as an entry point to talk about, again, totally uh, unqualified, but uh, here I am nonetheless. Something uh, about his whole body of work feels very Buddhist, which is the recurring motifs, the recurring people, the the idea of people like living, reliving these lives. The you know the two characters walk by each other in the river on the staircase, and then they walk by each other again on that same staircase. On the skywalk is gone, and these these same actors who are sort of reliving these lives that are the same people, but not the same people. Their spirits move on through these different stories. Like that to me is all reincarnation. There's a reincarnation image in the very first scene of rebels of the neon God, where he kills a roach and throws it out his window. And then the roach reappears on his window now alive again. Mm -hmm. um, obviously like in that world, which is that movie is a movie that exists in our objective reality. Like that's a different cockroach, but like the image itself is of uh, reincarnation. Um, Chiming Liang is a Buddhist who is making Buddhist works. 
that reflect Buddhist philosophies, and he is exploring his spirituality and his faith through these films. And I think Stray Dogs is the most, like, the only way I can make head or tails of it is through that. So to me, this is the most direct uh, sort of communication of that. That, I mean, that, I can follow that. That all makes sense. I, I, I'm, I'm less of an expert in Buddhism than you are, so I can't, I can't challenge <laughs> any of those points. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was just, it was, you know, um, Stray Dogs is so experiential that it's like it's. I, I find it more difficult to talk about than many of these other films that we've been talking about. But that was something I wanted to like. Uh, I that was something that clicked into place about his entire body of work watching Stray Dogs this most recent time that I, I don't know if I was considering before. Well, I mean, the thing with Stray Dogs is I just think about it as a lot of characters waiting for something. And that's a very hard thing to talk about. I mean, as far as like, you know, it, it's just like the the boredom of, of transient people, you know, uh, you know, and, and just being in situations where they get kind of lost in an image or or are kind of just withstanding the environment that they're put in. Um I mean, it's compelling, but it's also, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's, there's not only so much to really say about it. I mean, it does seem to have a great deal of focus on ritual, which is something, I mean, I think a lot of the films have is like, I mean, I mean that that's something that, okay, who, what time is it there has a bit of that with the, you know, the rituals after the father's passed away and even the... Um, I mean, I think of like days as like like at least fifty percent ritual, um, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I I think I associate ritual with the Catholic filmmakers, but I mean, I guess that could be uh, applied to a lot of different uh, re- religions and and ideologies. I mean, but uh, the it's it's interesting the use of ritual. There's a lot of Buddhist ceremonies. Obviously, the river is full of. Uh, the there are both spiritual and medical solutions that uh, Shao Kang seeks uh, to deal with his neck pain in the river, mm. um, and it, I I I hesitate to even talk about the depictions of ritual in the movies because like I'm unfamiliar with them and therefore they come across as like alien and strange and that sort of emphasizes how uh, ineffective they are in treating his neck pain. Um, but also, like, that's me as a Westerner, just unfamiliar. Chai Ming Liang, the director, has a very different relationship with that sort of thing in a way that, like, I feel I can unpack when Coppola uses Catholic or, you know, or or, or, or uh, Scorsese uses Catholic ritual. Like, I think I understand where they're coming from there and I can speak to it more. I, I He's a spiritual uh, filmmaker, I believe, but Chai Ming Liang is, I do think... Throughout, there is a sort of skepticism towards people who believe that they have the answer. Uh, I think there. I think the river is very pointed in that. How they they go all of this way to see a very specific holy man who goes through this very complicated ritual, and he's explaining what what they're doing and what who what they're waiting for the spirits to tell them. And they spend all this time in a hotel, and after the sort of climactic, humiliating, uh, very ambivalently uh, constructed uh, incest scene, they get a call and the guy says, you should go see a doctor. <laughs> like uh, there's, there's a lot of skepticism there or like, what time is it there? You have this, uh, this monk who's telling her about the yin yang water. That's half boiling water and half cold water. And you leave that out for the spirit of the father. Uh, she is killing her uh, house plant 
with this water. And I think that is a, and when you think about the use of water as like water represents what people aren't receiving, it's their needs that aren't being met or whatever. The idea, the image of someone like taking this spiritual, this water that is like part boiling and, and part cold and like pouring it into a plant and killing it is a pretty potent metaphor for like uh, how the answers to the suffering of life is not contained in religion necessarily. Um, You're right. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't I don't know if I have anything else to say about stray dogs. Uh I think that's all I have to say about it. Um uh, other than that that it's um I think maybe the most powerful performance of Lee of Lee Kang Sheng of all these films for me. I I think um I mean they they all feel like different kinds of love letters to him, but this one feels like this one and Days feel the ones that feel like the most the most devoted to him of all of them, weirdly. Um, which is interesting that they come at the end after all of these stories where he's part of ensembles. It feels like he's really much more the focus, uh, especially by the time you get to days. Um, which I, where I don't feel that way about the other films where I feel like he's like there, there's a greater effort to like make stories that involve him. These, these feel like, Oh, there's no need for stories. We, we already have what we need, which is my guy. <laughs> well, know? yeah. Um, w- part of the Walker series is, uh, when Chiming Liang talks about how much he loves doing that series, he said, he compares it to, you know, painters doing still lifes, which is like for him, the excitement is he gets to show up at a place and the film presents itself to him. And he just, gets to sort of like figure out where to put his camera and how to frame it but he doesn't know what he's going to do he doesn't come with ideas he just all he needs to do is make up Lee Kang Shang uh and put him in the costume find a place set up the camera and then go um and he thinks of himself as you know he he talks about the gaze he talks about uh uh Goodbye Dragon Inn being where he sort of discovered his love of the gaze and how he he gave the ticket taker woman uh, the limp specifically so it would take her longer to travel through a space so we would have to consider the space more than considering her. Mm. Um, like, that that uh, that sense certainly comes in uh, Days, I think, more than anything. Days feels like a home movie to me. I, I am honestly not a big fan of Days. I kind of... My most recent viewing of it, I was, I was able to, like, vibe with it a little, but Days feels the most... Um, undirected and sort of <laughs> i guess purposelessness i mean there it's a pretty clear narrative it's it's about you know and it's and it's certainly tied into the narratives of all the other ones about someone who is struggling and about the temporary relief of people um and and the ways in which that temporary relief is insufficient uh to their lives um and the the sort of struggle to connect and failure to connect about these, you know, two people who speak different languages and for uh, Chiming Liang very specifically did not want any subtitle dialogue. So none, nothing mm-hmm. in days, not that there's much dialogue to begin with, but none of it is subtitled um, yeah. because he, yeah. he doesn't want you. T- he, he figures that, you know, even viewers in East Asia are probably only going to know at least one of the languages <laughs> being spoken. Um, and he specifically wants to alienate you from that to you know emphasize that. So like there, it's not that it's it's not that it's just like oh whatever he just shot a bunch of crap and put it together and called it a movie. Like there's a the purpose is clear enough. It's 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 much clearer than even something like Visage to me. But like uh, I, I guess I just find like someone washing vegetables for nine minutes less compelling than someone uh, doing pretty much anything else in any of his other movies for nine minutes. 
Um, I mean, when I when I saw it, I I didn't like it when I saw it at the New York Film Festival because I think I was watching it kind of out of context. It had been a few years since I had seen anything new from him because I hadn't I hadn't kept up with well I mean he hadn't made anything in a while but I, I felt like I I felt like out of step with him and so the fact that I was watching it on a laptop because it was like a, a festival all being done virtually I think it just yeah like I said like watching someone clean vegetables for six minutes you know I, I just felt like all right I, I, I get it but like I, I wasn't like compelled by it or moved by it and I think when when uh, you said that we were going to do this, and I thought, oh, I'm, you know, am I gonna am I gonna do the same thing? I I thought with days because I knew people that thought it was a masterpiece, and I'm like, you know, I I maybe if I had seen this at the festival like I was supposed to on the big screen, I would have been enveloped in it. I think I just felt like this did not translate to the laptop kind of viewing experience for me. It just felt like I couldn't. I couldn't get lost in something that slow that way. So I actually bought the Blu-ray for this. I'm like, oh, I've got to buy a $30 Blu-ray for a film I remember not liking for this podcast. Well, we're not even going to really talk about days. But I did buy it, and um, and I projected it big, and I found that it it held me. It worked. I mean, I got it. And I think also just watching it in quick succession with all the other films, I mean, I just was able to focus on the actor and focus on with the years, you know, look like on him now, you know? And I think, I mean, it's not a film that I would start with and it's not a film that I will probably rewatch a whole lot, but I, I could, I, I, I get what it's doing and I appreciate it more than the first time I saw it where I really, I felt like, okay, I, I didn't need over two hours of this, but um, now I find it kind of a satisfying if it if it winds up being the last film, I feel like it's a good. I still feel like Stray Dogs is the last major, the major thing. But this feels yeah. like a satisfying, you know, postscript. Which I, whereas before I felt like there's there's just too little happening for me to care about the glimmers of humanity that come at the end. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I am very curious to see. The the thing I the only thing I'm really confident about is Chiming Liang is not going to stop working. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's going to keep. I think since days he has made like three, four short films. So like he's going to keep working. Is he ever going to return to features in in like in a narrative way? Like the last real narrative feature, the one that I consider like really strongly driven by narrative would be I Don't Want to Sleep Alone. That's 2006, so I'm going to go ahead and guess that he probably will not. There's probably never going to be another movie as accessible as Goodbye Dragon Inn or something like that. Um, but like, uh, I am excited to continue watching these movies, and because on the surface, the, the rhythms of them and the pacing of them and the visuals of them, his, his aesthetic eye, uh, just everything about it is... I, I find so agreeable and I, I just am someone who has, you know, even before preparing for this podcast, like I don't own the river on DVD, but the Chicago public library has it. And I have rented it from the Chicago Public library like four times. Cause I'm just, mm. I get into a mood where I want to watch the river. <laughs> um, uh, and like, I'm going to continue watching these films over and over again. Uh, and even if he never makes another feature film, uh, his body of work will continue to open up to me, I believe, and influence who I am and, and 
open up my own life to me in in other ways that I I you know it's this is just undoubtedly one of the most important filmmakers in my life uh um and so I hope uh that uh, the listeners enjoyed this podcast and and I hope they they found this edifying and that I was able to do justice uh to Chiming Liang's work and that uh you were inspired to like seek out difficult film experiences especially in a world where our attention spans are shrinking and we you know we and the world outside of our homes is worse than ever every day and so uh escapism becomes more important every day like i i i do want to encourage people to uh to seek difficult films and to challenge themselves in that way and hopefully this podcast is uh, an on ramp for people to discover a body of work that I that it's that itself this body of work is its own on ramp. Like he teaches you how to watch his own movies. Uh, part of the way he's able to make days is because he has already taught you what a chiming Liang movie is, so he can cut away more of it. Uh, which uh, is just one of the fascinating things about watching them chronologically. But um, yeah, watching them in chronological order can make even the ones that are less accessible feel like they make sense in like a in in like in that context like i think that it it makes it makes films that might seem kind of daunting on their own feel like part of a larger like a larger body of work a lar- a larger overall uh project that i think yeah, they resonate with with each other in different in interesting ways. That I think that like yeah, when we talk about like directors on a on a show like Directors Club, I mean, I think that this is a body of work that like makes sense to consider as a whole. Where versus like some maybe that are you know more like journeymen uh, or journey persons. I don't know if they, they, that that t- term is out of date anymore. But like yeah, but th- but this one, I mean, even even the ones that feel like outliers, like Visage are at least interesting, you know, to consider alongside the ones that maybe we're more excited to talk about. I think that there's not like one that I felt like this was a waste of my time. Like they've all, they all felt like interesting. They had something interesting to add to the overall picture for me. Awesome. And, uh, uh, I guess this is director's club at the end. We got to say our three favorite, uh, chiming Liang movies. Um, okay. Do you have that prepared? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I could say for th- Three, I would go with Stray Dogs. Uh, two, I would say Rebels of the Neon God. And one, I would say uh, Goodbye Dragon Inn. And and for me, I would say three is The River. Two is What Time Is It There? And one is Goodbye Dragon Inn. Though Stray Dogs, whenever I am actually sitting and watching it, I am overwhelmed in a way I'm not with his any of his other films and also <laughs> with any other films like it is it is an overwhelming experience so stray dogs is perhaps maybe his best and i and i uh i just don't have like warm fuzzy feelings with it the way i have with something like goodbye dragon in or what time is it there um, yeah and i and I'll, I'll give a shout i really loved boys um you know it's not like a, a profound uh a, a work as the uh as what comes later, but as a as someone that likes like troubled teen movies and coming of age movies, I think his his early TV features are uh, pretty entertaining. And that one, I think, has a we didn't really go into it, but I mean that's worth seeking out if you're a fan of the uh, Rebels of the Neon God. Those TV movies have way more chiming Liang in them that you might think. 
Um, he never, when, the official filmography always starts with Rebels of the Neon God. Those two are chiming Liang movies through and through. Yeah, yeah. This gets into a whole other conversation about like why TV movies are not considered part of the filmographies uh, consistently, but uh, you know, with with certain directors. But we can get into that another time. <laughs> sure. Um, thank you so much, Bill. Uh, in addition to hearing you on this podcast quite frequently, uh, where mm-hmm. else can people find your work? Uh, I mean, right now, uh, I'm just toiling away on this Directors Club episode on Godard, but uh, uh, my old my old episodes of supporting characters are on the Now Playing Network, and I've I've done a few home video things that have come out in the last few months. Uh, if you have the means to watch Region B Blu-rays. Uh, Amanda Reyes, or Amanda Reyes, and I did the commentary for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre for Second Sight, and uh, uh, Travis Crawford and I did the commentary for Death Dream for 101 Films. Those are uh, most recent uh, home video things I've worked on, and there's a few things coming out later this year, but um, uh, those are what I've been working on. And I'm on an episode of Projection Booth that probably drops in a few days, might be out before this, on the film Pretty Poison, the uh, 2 old Anthony Perkins, uh, Noel Black film. So that's some of the things I've been doing. Awesome. And uh, you can find me, uh, well, if you haven't checked it out yet, I did uh, 10 episodes of a podcast called Uptown Song Club that I'm proud of about music. Uh, that all still exists on the Now Playing Network. Um, I'm also the co-host of a podcast, 96 Greers, about the films of uh, character actor Judy Greer. Um, The last episode was on Addicted to Fresno, which is uh, a Jamie Babbitt, director of But I'm a Cheerleader, uh, sort of underseen comedy from 2015 that is uh, very funny. Uh, It's a podcast I really enjoy doing. um, And every episode sort of reveals more and more about the actor in a way that builds on itself that uh, I'm uh, very much enjoying. So definitely go check out 96 Greers, also part of the Now Playing Network. Um, There is another spiel that I think Jim always does at the end of these podcasts about all the great podcasts Now Playing Network or where you can email us, and I don't know any of that, and that's quite all right. Uh, It's the internet. You can find us. Um, (laughs) uh, And uh, until next time, uh, I'm Patrick Rapol saying goodnight. And thank you for listening. 我想起月香，我想起花钱，多少的往事留在我心田。一半是心酸，一半是甜蜜，一年又一年长江我流连。